Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com The people who classify themselves as white are not happy with their appearance. Now, they've taught us to be unhappy about our appearance. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii. And she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people, and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. Humans have been interested in proving their bodies for millennia, often with mixed results. Today, scientists are hacking nature and manipulating bodies and minds through reverse engineering, rebuilding, and augmentation to come up with ways to overcome physical handicaps, eliminate diseases, and even give us superhuman memories. Adam Puri investigates the field of bioengineering in his latest book called The Body Builders, Inside the Science of the Engineered Human. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm very pleased it has brought him to our show today, along with Pat Fletcher, one of the subjects of his book. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Thank you for having me. What's unique about Liam Hextra's situation? Uh, Well, yeah, in that chapter, I wanted to explore genetic engineering, which is a very ethically fraught um, field, obviously. And uh, so in order to do that, I mean, one of the things I did is I I went to China to look at um, a company that was trying to decode billions of genomes, you know, billions of nucleotides and genomes. But um, I looked at a relatively simple mutation that people are beginning to to try and capitalize on. And uh, people mean believe- genetic mutations? 
Yeah, genetic mutations. And uh, Liam, they thought they think that Liam Hostrum might have it. There's there's something called a negative regulator. It's called myostatin. And when the body makes it, it, it sort of limits muscle growth. And if you don't have it, you get really big muscles. So you have these muscle-bound mice and, and dogs. And Liam Hoekstra was... He was born with this almost superhuman strength. His parents realized that he was different when he, he pulled himself up as a baby into an iron cross. He formed a human T, which is like a gymnastics move. Kind of blew their minds a little bit. Uh, so is that bad or is that good? Um, well, I guess uh, if he has a tantrum, he could punch a hole in the <laughs> wall. So <laughs> it could be a nightmare. But, but uh, I don't know. I don't think there's a downside at this point, although later he might have heart problems. Those are some of the things that have been... And there are all sorts of other genetic diseases. Uh, We recently had a woman on our show whose great-grandmother developed a genetic mutation and passed it on to the next few generations through the X chromosome. And uh, the people who had it die young. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what is fascinating about this mutation is that um, the guy who's trying to develop it, and he made these breeds of mice that the the press called Schwarzenegger mice. He made Schwarzenegger dogs. He's trying to develop it to fight Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a disease where basically your muscles rip themselves apart. And he figured if he could give people this mutation, it would delay the onset of that disease and also muscle-wasting disease. So I chose that because it's indicative of how you might use a simple mutation to treat a disease. But also, as soon as this research was published, his phone lines were were overrun with um, with meatheads who wanted to be test subjects. There was even a, a high school football coach who wanted him to... Uh, basically gene dope his entire team to give them big muscles. So This is H. Lee Sweeney, who's a scientist doing this. Yeah, so he's both uh, speaks at Duchesne's Muscular Dystrophy Conferences and also is a consultant to the World Anti-Doping Authority. And Uh, so some athletes want gene doping. Yeah, I mean, it's undetectable steroids, basically. And and wouldn't that uh, have them disallowed in, in the Olympics? Well, yeah, that's one of the things that Sweeney is, is consulting on. I mean, they don't really know how to test for it. So he's he's helping them come up with different tests. I'm not sure publicly what they've disclosed they know how to do, but um, you'd have to catch it pretty close to when you gave them the, you know, the, the viruses that insert the genes, and it could be undetectable. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Later this month, HBO and Oprah Winfrey will bring the story of Henrietta Lacks to television. The film, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, is based on the book of the same name by Rebecca Skloot, and it premieres on April 22nd. You may already be somewhat familiar with the story of Henrietta Lacks, who lived in southeastern Baltimore County in the early 1950s down in Turner Station. She had cancer, and in 1951, Doctors at Johns Hopkins Hospital did a biopsy to diagnose her disease and to determine her course of treatment. She died eight months later, but her cells live on. She may have consented to the biopsy, but without her consent and without the knowledge of her family, cells taken during that procedure were used for decades in medical research around the world. In fact, the HeLa cell line, HeLa, H-E-L-A, H-E for Henrietta, and L-A for Lax, revolutionized medical research and, by some accounts, has resulted in billions of dollars worth of medical breakthroughs. None of the proceeds, however, went to Ms. Lax or to her descendants. 
So could the same thing happen today? So we're going to have a conversation about informed consent. How much have standards changed in the 65 years since Henrietta Lacks was a cancer patient at Hopkins? And what are today's standards for informed consent? Dr. Jeffrey Kahn is the director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. He stops by midday from time to time to talk about how ethicists help us frame the complex questions that surround stories like the extraordinary case of Henrietta Lacks. Jeff, always good to see you. Thanks for coming by. Good to be here. If you would like to join our conversation about informed consent, about the ethics and the issues raised in this incredible story of Henrietta Lacks, 410-662-8780 is our number. Our email midday at wipr.org and our Twitter handle at midday Tom Hall. So let's start first with explaining to folks what makes Mrs. Lax's cells so extraordinary? Her cells are different than other people. So it's, it's a great question, and it's the right place to start. And the answer lies in the title of the Rebecca Sklute book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So um, Mrs. Lacks' cells were the first that would grow in culture, so outside of the body, um, and c- continue to reproduce and turn over effectively forever. They're an immortal cell line, and it was the first cell line that had ever been capable of that, shown to be able to grow um, in a Petri dish, effectively, outside the body in perpetuity. So up to that point, uh, researchers had tried to create such a cell line because it would be very useful for research, but it had never been achieved. And so those most cells, when they're taken out of the body, they grow in a Petri dish maybe a few generations. They turn over a few times, but then they stop. No matter whether they're fed or kept in a different environment, they just stop. Her cells kept going. And so that became a very valuable tool uh, for scientific research and and was so named after her, the first immortal cell line, uh, the HeLa cell line, as you said in in the intro. So there are now many other cell lines that have been coaxed to behave this way, but hers were the first. And so a very important thing for science. So... My understanding of this, I think probably for, and it's the same for a lot of folks who've ever had biopsies for anything, um, and it's it's interesting to think about this notion of the provenance of those cells, who, who owns them, who controls them. Um, like 200,000 other men every year, uh, eight years ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So there was blood work that indicated I might have cancer, and the doctor said, you need a biopsy. So they took a biopsy, and they had a bunch of cells. They send them down to the pathology lab, and they say, yep, you got cancer. And then they figure out, okay, this is what we're going to do. They decided to operate. I'm perfectly fine. Everything's good. But then what happens to those cells? I mean, do they just get thrown away? Okay, we're done with Hall. We're going to move on to the next guy. I mean, or what actually physically happens with that material? It, so it stays in, in a repository. And so when um, your pathological specimen, because that's what it is, is taken for diagnostic purposes. So they're trying to figure out what disease you have, right, to give you a diagnosis. It's for your treatment. It's not for research, right? It's, it's removed for you to be tested. If it's desired to be used in research, you have to actually give a second consent. So you have to give permission for that uh, research use. Now, the, the tissues are stored uh, in a pathology archive, effectively. 
And if all of the identifiers are stripped, they can become part of a de-identified tissue repository. And since there's no way to connect you to that tissue, researchers can access those repositories. But And there isn't a way to get consent from you for you know, a future use of a particular kind. If you've given consent for a research use of a de-identified sort, they can be used by anybody in the future. If there's identifications attached, you, you sign a consent that, that answers whether you would be willing to have that happen. And it depends on the particular place and the particular kinds of research. You may need to be um, recontacted for a future use of of that information. So it's a little bit complicated. Maybe I didn't explain it as clearly as I might have. It's a little bit complicated. So so de-identification then, is that the norm? I mean, is the the aspiration of researchers to have a bunch of anonymous cells that they can work with? um, And does that affect the quality of their research. For example, it would seem to me as a layperson that identifying the owner of the cells would help in the research. Mm-hmm. In other words, if they have cells from a 50-something-year-old Caucasian male and they knew that, then they could say this is the result in a 50-something Caucasian male. If, they, if it was de-identified, they wouldn't know that and maybe the research wouldn't be as good. It's true. It, there's there's uh, information lost by de-identification. Um, but De-identified samples can be used for some kinds of research, and there are committees that review proposals to use de-identified specimens, um, which, for obvious reasons, they, there can't be a recontact to the person from whom those specimens came because there's no way to know whose who's they were. And so there's a – in between the researcher and the use of the specimens are review committees, which – permit or or deny the use of de-identified specimens. So they and that can be used for certain kinds of basic research. For research where you need to know gender, age, maybe some demographic information in addition to those things are necessary, then you you as an individual would need to have given consent for identified use of your specimen in the future. Now there's let me add one little wrinkle, not a little wrinkle. Usually, if something's of interest, um, the pathological specimen may not be a sufficient specimen to, to use in research. Not enough, not the right kind of tissue, not prepared in the way that the researchers might want. So they would have to come back to you and ask for an additional sample that would be used only for research purposes. And that requires a second, totally different consent process it's, because it's not consent on your part to be treated for whatever's um, wrong with you, but rather it's it's to take tissue from you for the purpose of research that may be uh, on the, the disease or illness that, that you have, but it isn't to benefit you directly. And so we treat that as a as a different matter, a different consent process. The, the information in the consent form and the discussion that you have with the uh, investigator would be different. And there's a, a, a separate, a sort of a branch point is a nice way to say it, between research on on uh, samples that were collected for a, a pathological treatment purpose, diagnostic purpose, and, and a sample that was collected for strictly a research purpose. So back to Henrietta Lacks for a minute. Um, these distinctions in the kinds of consent, whether it's for research or for diagnostic purposes, et cetera, um, in 1951, were any of the standards that we're now talking about uh, in place at that time? What what was going on with Mrs. Lax and her family? So the, the short answer to your question is no. The standards that we just went through did not exist at that time. And the standards for um, consent for research period 
didn't come into play in this country until the late 1970s. So it wasn't that Mrs. Lack was treated any differently than anybody else would have been in 1951. Although we should mention that she was in the blacks-only ward at Johns Hopkins. Right. And and maybe to just put a a finer point on that, there were not that many places in Baltimore that would treat African-Americans at that time. Johns Hopkins was one of the places that did, albeit in a separate ward. You're right. Um, But the same physicians and the same care that everybody else got. And at, and at this point, Rebecca Skloot and others have, have not, no one has suggested that she received inferior care. They're just, you know, she had cervical cancer. It was a very serious and aggressive disease, and, and they were not able to save her. But I guess there's, I, I'm assuming that there's there's consensus about the quality of her care, which evidently was okay. Um, I think it was actually considered the best available at the time. I think that there's consensus about that. So as is the case often when you come by and we have these little chats, um, somehow, sometimes the, 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 the rhetoric sounds simple, but it ain't like informed consent. How could there be a question about that? You inform the patient what she needs to know and the patient grants her consent, but it actually is more complicated. What does informed consent comprise? So it, it's a great question. And, and I, just to say two more words about Mrs. Lack's story. So, the specimen that was taken from her of the tumor that, that ended up killing her was was sent for pathology examination, and then uh, a portion of that was, was shared with a researcher. So that would not happen today, but that was common at the time. And that became the immortal cell And the line. reason that wouldn't happen is what? Exactly? Because we, we now ask patients when they give a, a pathological specimen whether they're willing to have an identified use of that for research, yes or no. You can opt out. Most people, I think, don't realize that they can opt out, but that's a problem of the process rather than the process that we have in place. It may not be as as clear as it ought to be. And, and if you think about what's going on, you've shared your own story. When, when you were being treated for what may have been cancer, you probably weren't paying attention to the fine points of a document that was shared with you for your potential signature. Right, as cl- you weren't paying as close attention as it you might. It wasn't top of mind. It wasn't top, top of, of mind. Top of mind was I had cancer and I wanted to get rid exactly. of it. Yeah. But so it may not be the most opportune time to be asking people these questions, but people are asked. And if they say no, then the specimen is not used for research. And when it comes to the calculus of that, do you know, do, do, do researchers know why people choose one way or the other? In other words, it seemed to me, I mean, I'm sure I signed a consent form that said, go find, do whatever you want. Um, but are, what are the reasons that people give for disallowing their cells to be used for research? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I don't know that we have a, a ton of data to answer it except to say um, sometimes people don't want their material being used for any purpose. It's theirs. It's a kind of protection of their what they think of as private. Um, they may not trust the place where that's asking them. They may not think that um, they're going to get anything for it, and, and it's kind of an altruistic request, right? We're asking people to share something that comes from their body for the good of, of science, for the good of community, for the good of society. And people may say, I don't, I don't want to support that. So there, there is a range of reasons. I think the vast majority of people act as you suggested you did, which is to say, I, okay, that seems like a good thing to me, and they sign and they agree. It's, it's a very small proportion of people who, who say no. Um, you asked a different question, though, which I didn't answer, which is what, what is informed consent? Mm-hmm. So we can break it into two parts. It, informed is information. It's disclosure of the things that are relevant for the individual to make a decision about what they're being asked. 
So what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? What's going to be done with the material that's being collected to me and for what purposes? That's the information part. So sufficient disclosure of information in a way that people can understand it such that they can make a decision. And then the consent part is, do you voluntarily agree? Right? So it has to be agreement and it has to be voluntary, uh, um, unpressured, Right. Yeah. So the way it's presented is important. Absolutely. I mean, if the doctor slaps this thing on in front of you on the desk and said, "Everybody signs this, you sign it too." That's one way. We we would think that that's not a that doesn't really count, right? You may have signed your name to a piece of paper, but it doesn't meet the the spirit and certainly not the principle by which we do this thing we call informed consent. So we should we shouldn't think of it as a as a form. We should think of it as a process. In 2003, Cuba opened up its economy to allow its people to own small businesses, and today Havana is flush with all sorts of small mom-and-pop enterprises, from people who rent rooms in their homes to private restaurants and shops that sell everything from clothes to cell phone accessories. Cubans who are a part of this new economy tend to make much more money than those who work for the Cuban state, and they tend to be white. Thipa Fernandez reports on what it's like to be a small business owner and black in Havana. Inside a bright orange house in the residential Havana neighborhood of Vedado, a baker is doing a brisk trade. Hello. This is my bakery. Hello. Good to be here. It smells good in here. Pavel Donato Leon's whole wheat breads and chocolatey pastries have a reputation in Vedado. I'm a simple man. My name is Pavel Lazaro Donato Leon. His path wasn't easy. He says his father pushed him to learn a trade at age 17, and he didn't want to be a plumber or a mechanic. And I was talking one day with my father, and I told him that, what about if I become a baker? And he told me, great, bread, everyone needs to eat bread every day, all over the world. He learned his trade at a local state-run bakery that made the bread rolls which people received as part of their daily ration of food. He went on to work at a larger state bakery and then finally decided to start his own shop. I had no money in the beginning, and I put some tables, and we paint. It cost a lot of money to buy a lot of things that we need here, and I got no more money. He's similar to many small business owners who struggle a lot when they first start. And not unlike the situation for African Americans, access to early capital is a greater problem if you're Afro-Cuban than if you're white, says Alejandro de la Fuente, director of the Afro-Latin American Research Institute at Harvard University. As one of my collaborators in Cuba says, dollars are white. Most dollars arrive in Cuba through family remittances from the Cuban-American community in, in South Florida, and that community is overwhelmingly white. A second barrier to entry for Afro-Cubans is real estate, De La Fuente says. Most small businesses are run out of a home. A storefront is likely the front porch. But having a nice home in an area where people with money frequent is more often a luxury of white Cubans. Historically, and this predates the Cuban Revolution, blacks were concentrated in the the poorest areas of the city. And Afro-Cubans still live in the city's poorer areas. Bakery owner Donata Leon says pre-revolution Cuba has had another lingering impact on Afro-Cubans starting small businesses today. There's no family knowledge of owning a business to pass down. There is not too much black people in the past who had business. And 
If I had grandfather the one had a business, I want to imitate him. That was the case for Maddie Zaletta and her mother. They started making leather bags in their home on the outskirts of Havana back in 1992. Zaletta would sell her bags to store owners who would resell them. To have their own store, they would have to find a place to rent, get a license from the government, and pay a monthly fee, like a small business tax. That itself was a challenge for the mother-daughter team for years until my mom retired. She was a professor, and after she retired from her professional work life, she finally had time to apply for a small business license. Three years ago, they managed to open a store on a quaint cobbled street in a very touristy area of Altavana. Now there's a high monthly rent payment to meet, which is tough. It's a slow business because we make all our bags ourselves. This isn't like making and selling food where you turn over the product daily. These are really kind of luxury items. Zaletta sees the upfront investment needed and the ongoing need to reinvest as a major barrier to more Afro-Cubans starting small businesses. They just don't have the resources to do it. And says Harvard de la Fuente, this is leading to a stark economic divide between white and black Cubans. He thinks the Cuban government should step in. You could concentrate development funds in some of the poorest areas of the cities, so residents in those areas could use、uh, public funds to launch their own businesses. De La Fuente says employers also need to focus on hiring Afro-Cubans. You could look at the possibility of establishing labor policies that make sure that the emergent private sector actually is open and is forced to incorporate and to hire. People of African descent. It's exactly what Pavel Donatelion prioritizes in his thriving bakery because he says people in his own community see him as someone who made it, so they come to him regularly. Asking me, Pavel, can you help my son? Pavel, can you help me? They need the money and they need to to work. So he finds work for people. Like grating days-old bread to make breadcrumbs, which is now a top seller, and this elderly man doing the grating has a well-paid job. For the world, Deepa Fernandez, Havana. And you heard Deepa here on the world. World nigga no. A mob attack on Nigerian students in India. Why did Indian students attack them in a shopping mall? I'm Malika Bilal. I'm Samia Kay, and you're in the stream. I don't do manners. I don't do. Any stupid thing in this country, but for Indians to come and attack me just for no reason, I don't see. I don't. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. But the only thing I'm saying, if they don't want us in this country, they should let us know. That was Injuns Ama Awa, one of the young Nigerians recently attacked in a New Delhi suburb after a candlelight vigil turned violent. Hundreds were gathered to mourn the death of Indian student Manish Kari, who died from a suspected drug overdose. Fellow students accused Nigerians of supplying him with drugs. Endurance, his brother and a friend, were spotted nearby the vigil and attacked. Well, this is just the latest attack against Africans in India, where tens of thousands of students from the continent study. Police have made arrests and opened a probe into the attack, but the Indian government insists it was not racially motivated. Things like this can happen. We are human beings.、It、can happen, but why only to Africans? 
Now, African embassies are urging the United Nations Human Rights Council to investigate. Meanwhile, African students were advised to stay indoors amid heightened security in the area. So here to help us discuss, we're joined in studio by Mahesh Shantaram, a photographer from Bangalore who recently completed a series on Africans in India. You can see his photos around us here in the studio. Sadiq Bello is a Nigerian student in New Delhi. Mina Wumbe is a student from Ghana and she's in Hyderabad, India right now. Also in New Delhi, Tarun Vijay is chair of the India-Africa Parliamentary Friendship Group. Hello everybody, it's good to have you here in the stream. Tarun, I want to play a video comment that um, Mina recorded a little while ago. I just wanted to see how you'd react to her. Have a listen to this. Being a black, this skin, being a black, being a black, doesn't make you no less of a human. We are human beings. In fact, in India here, I've seen people who are blacker than me, but they still see me and they call me black. That was Mina recording that comment after one of many attacks in India on Africans. How would you react to her? She's right here in our conversation, Tarun. What would you tell her? Uh, uh, my full support to her and uh, I share her anguish and uh, anger. I am with her, but to say that the Indians can be racist is the most uh, uh, vicious thing because uh, we worship black God. Krishna is black, and we have been seeing the blacks, uh, descendants of the African uh, ancestors, living amicably in Maharashtra and Gujarat. Uh, such attacks are uh, attacks by mindless, criminalized people. Uh, sometime back, uh, there were Biharis who attacked in Maharashtra. Mm -hmm. uh, there were Mar Marathis who were threatened in Bihar and so on. But they can't be racist attacks. There have been uh, many such incidents. One community uh, reacting against other community for certain reasons, economic or just like that because the criminalized behavior doesn't need any logic. So this incident and the other incidents which have occurred in Radar condemnable, they are unfortunate, but the Indians have been supporting, loving, living together with African students, African people, and we were the first to support the black rights. Uh, we gave Gandhi uh, to Africa and Africans turned him into Mahatma and sent back to us. So we have a great affinity and respect for each other. Sure. Uh, perhaps in a, in a moment of anger, shock, uh, people are reacting, I can understand that, but they must understand that Indians can be anything but racist. Indians aren't we racist. are the victims of racism ah. of the British people for long. How can we be? We have fought against racism. So Mahatma Gandhi has been known for his attitude towards South Africans and he has been known to have called them Kafirs. So that question about Gandhi not being racist and being embraced by Africans, there is that little rub there, that little bit of tension. But Sadiq, you're a student in India right now. On a scale of one to ten, how racist have you found the Indians to be? One is very kind and accepting. Ten is where you're afraid for your life. Yeah, hello. Uh, actually, the uh, racist uh, I've experienced here in India is that um, really so, uh, most the Indians don't like our skin colors. That is the black color. Because uh, they are always been around uh, with their own uh, friends, 
with same skin color, but yeah, if you are black, you have been behind them, is that uh, they consider you as uh, sort of trash because you had uh, black skin. And then uh, at times they considered uh, all the blacks and Africans are just uh, smelling or something like that. Uh, I think um, this uh, racism uh, has to do with uh, maybe malinformation or maybe uh, inadequate maybe education on uh, how humans are. And then, uh, however, we the uh, Africans we are black, but we still have the same uh, uh, blood in us. And then. Uh, Secondly, we are also humans, and then uh, we eat what the Indians eat, when the U.S. eat, when the uh, Americans eat. But uh, apparently, we don't eat human flesh. So, so of course, yes. I mean, uh, I've I've heard both, and I just can't help if you know. It, I just want to say that I identify more with what Sadiq has to say, and. Uh, the politician is speaking the, the those those words which which one, one can read or hear every time these attacks happen there is uh, i've heard this each and every time there is there is no racism in india which is amazing so i i don't know i just i just want to ask you sir why are so many people why are they saying that indians are racist why are indians saying indians are racist and why are People abroad also looking, and, and in those who visit our beautiful nation also feeling that Indians are racist. I wonder why. Are, are they all wrong? Maybe I don't know who you that. are. I don't know who you are. Are you an Indian or an American? I don't know. But you should understand oh, that a a language should, you, should, you should try. You should try to be more respectful to another panelist. I'm not a politician here. I'm like a fellow Indian. Sure. I'm like a human being. And... Uh, uh, the hatred in your language and the kind of viciousness, the way you are conveying your thoughts, is something which is shocking to me. We are, if we were racist, why would have all the entire South, which is complete, you know, you know Tamil, you know Kerala, you know Karnataka and Andhra, uh, why do we live with them? We have blacks, uh, black people around us. You are denying your own nation, you are denying your ancestry, you are denying your history, you are denying your culture, and you are trying to be good. That's very bad. Uh, I think uh, we can be as good or as bad as any other human community. So, Tarun, I, I, I want to jump anger, in here uh, first, in just, just, anger, just to reiterate. Tarun, I, I hear you. I want to jump in here just, one, to reiterate uh, the, the fact that Mahesh did pull out his passport to show you that he is an Indian who happens to be here on set and in the studio for us uh, visiting to talk about his project and the photos that we see in the studio. But I want to share with you an example um, because I heard what you say about there not being racism. And there are people in our community who are, agree with you and say that's not the case. Saleh on Twitter, though, is not one of them. He says he faces discrimination daily in India. He says, one day I ordered an online product, a T-shirt, and it came in a black box. An Indian thought it was marijuana. So I asked him, why do you think that? And his reply was, because you guys are black and from Africa, you do drugs. He goes on to say, though, I'm not saying that all Indians are racist, but the majority, he says, are. I know a lot of good Indians, and they are more like brothers than just friends to me. Mahesh, I know you have a similar story about a friend of yours from Cameroon. 
uh, who uh, was was, yeah, was he, shopping he went to buy in a, a mobile phone in a shop, and the shopkeeper kind of invited him, saying, "Sir, why don't you have a look at what I have? And you don't have to feel afraid. You can c- come to my shop and have a look at everything because I I have many customers from your country." And and my friend said, "Are you sure you have customers from my country?" He said, "Yes, yes, yes. Look at my phone." And he showed uh, the contacts list on his phone, and it was Negro one, Negro two, Negro three, Negro four. That I mean, that story is immediately funny, but it's also very exemplary of how a lot of Indians think and think and do not know. What is wrong from right as as far as this? I'm sure. Ta- Ta- Tarun, just, just give, me, give me a moment, Tarun, because I want to bring in the voice of, of, a, of a young African student studying in India. Tarun, let's share this conversation. Tarun, you said you're not a politician, you're a human being. Take a pause and then let me just bring in Mina. Mina, uh, there are headlines regularly in India. Here's one here. Bangalore, mob strips Tanzanian girl, torches her car as police watch. Another one, attacks on Nigerians, tight security in Greater Noida, cops ashore action. How afraid are you to be out and about taking part in Indian life as a student there? Now, I want to categorically say I'm not racially profiling all Indians as being racist, but majority of the Indian population are racist towards we Africans. Now, I'm taking a larger scenario. For example, what happened in Bangalore around last year, March. This Tanzanian girl who was attacked, for example, she had nothing to do with what happened. It was a Sudanese guy who killed an Indian accidentally, and the mob attacked the Tanzanian girl because she was what? She was black. So that is the problem within the Indian society. They refuse to accept, just like this one is just saying, that Indians are with black people, and therefore there is no racism. There is racism within the Indian system itself, not to talk of we Africans. So the earlier they start accepting the problem that there is racism within the Indian system, especially towards we Africans, and then they try to find solutions towards it. Because if they keep denying it, the attacks is going to get on every single day. It's not going to stop, and it's going to keep happening and getting worse day by day. So I completely disagree with him saying that there's no racism in India. That is completely yeah. wrong, and I totally don't agree with him. Right, so there is racism what happens in each India and every time and is these Africa. incidents are seen as, uh, as a law and order problem. But there's something, it is that, but there is something more than that, and it goes deeper. And so each time it's seen as a law and order problem, and the answer to that is putting more cops, putting 10 cops outside the uh, victim's house. That is not helping. That you know, you're applying a bandage, but you're not getting to the root cause. Started from the trap, now I rap. No matter where I'm at, I got crack. If you followed the national news, you know that Atlanta has been at a standstill for the past week or so after a fire took down a portion of a bridge on I-85, causing a traffic debacle the likes of which few people have ever seen there. The memes about how to fix it have been 
everywhere. But the real story about what went down is still in question. Investigators say three homeless people were discussing smoking crack before managing to light the bridge on fire. Man, that's convenient. Storing flammable materials and the like under a bridge that's a known hangout for addicts isn't something that's a good idea either, by the way. Of course, when it comes to finding a scapegoat, who's better than a couple crackheads? Come on, Atlanta. This is ridiculous. The Georgia Department of Transportation is going to have to fix it either way, and trying to pin it on someone society has ignored does no one any good. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is signaling that some major changes to the way police departments are investigated might be coming soon. The Justice Department has started a broad review of federal agreements that were intended to overhaul troubled police departments. The review covers deals that had already been made by the Obama administration, as well as those that are pending. These deals are called consent decrees. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson is here to talk about this. And Carrie, why does the Trump Justice Department say it is conducting this review? Well, Attorney General Jeff Sessions says it's not the federal government's job to manage state and local law enforcement agencies. He wants to be partners with those local police forces to help protect public safety, shore up police morale. Jeff Sessions says officers do dangerous work every day. They deserve respect, he says, even if there are a few bad apples out there. So Sessions has directed subordinates at the Justice Department to review those consent decrees. The civil rights investigators have struck to make changes to police departments, and he asked a judge for a three-month delay while he reconsiders whether to move ahead at all with the deal that Obama reached with Baltimore. So explain how the federal government has authority over state and local police at all. Well, Kelly, there's a federal law in the books that was passed by Congress after the brutal beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles years ago. The law mm-hmm. makes clear the Justice Department can come in and prosecute an individual cop for using excessive force. Here's how Jeff Sessions described his view of the Justice Department's role to reporters earlier this year. It's pretty clear what the role is, and, the, and that is that uh, uh, any uh, serious allegation of uh, excessive force uh, is subject to a federal investigation. Sometimes uh, local police departments really step up and do a great job, and it's almost disrespectful of them for the feds to go in and try to take it over. Kelly, that's Jeff Sessions saying even in cases of police brutality, he wants to defer to local governments, at least at first. Hmm. But this law requires that the federal government investigate patterns of unconstitutional policing. So how does that fit into the Trump Justice Department's priorities? Well, wait for it. This is where the major change is coming in the Trump Justice Department. In the Obama years, civil rights investigators dug into dozens of police forces uncovering systemic violations, things like patterns of shootings and beatings of unarmed people, racial discrimination and stops on the street or stopping people in cars uh, for illegitimate reasons. Justice in the Obama years wrote detailed reports about its findings, famously in Ferguson, Missouri and Chicago. But as of about a month ago, Jeff Sessions told reporters he hadn't read those reports. Now he may want to reopen some of those consent decrees that Obama negotiated to impose reforms. How easy will it be to do away with some of these consent decrees and agreements? Well, it depends. In some cases, the defendant 
violence. The cities are pushing back. That's what's happening in Baltimore, where the mayor and the police commissioner say they want the Justice Department to move ahead. They oppose any delay. They want to finalize that agreement to overhaul the police force. And in these consent decree cases, there's another thing to keep in mind. These deals are overseen by federal judges. The Trump administration will have to convince those judges there's a good reason to make changes. And as we've seen already this year, the Trump Justice Department has a mixed record advancing some of its priorities in court. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Thanks so much. I've You're seen welcome. what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. You ever hear the thin blue line? You know what that is? You ever hear that expression before when talking about police? The thin blue line is an expression that is used to describe solidarity between police officers to the point where they will defend each other at any cost in the name of the police, shall we call it the brotherhood? Um, Perhaps no greater example of this in Canada is playing out right now in Ottawa, but also across the country. Listeners of this program will know the following story because we've covered it at length. Last July, July 24th, if I'm not mistaken, a 37-year-old man named Abdirahman Abdi, a Somali immigrant who lived in Ottawa, was attacked and beaten by Toronto or by Ottawa police. He died as a result of that confrontation, and after an SIU investigation, One police officer involved in that named Daniel Monsian, he was charged with three charges, including manslaughter. And as I mentioned before the break, it is extremely, extremely rare in this country that a police officer would ever be facing a homicide charge. But that's what's going on in this case. Now, uh, the case is uh, really at the early stages, but police officers in Ottawa have decided in a public show of support for Montsian, who's been charged with manslaughter, that they would make bracelets. The bracelets have the words, united we stand, divided we fall. And they are uh, including also the, uh, the number of the police officer saying essentially that these police officers support their colleague who's been charged with manslaughter. Now, they started handing these out in Ottawa recently, but... We found out through reporting that actually police officers across Canada are wanting to get in on this and are requesting their own wristbands in support of an officer charged with killing somebody. Now, I want to read you from a news story about this because this gives you an insight into police culture. Now, a lot of police obviously are supportive of this, and that's why they're ordering thousands of wristbands. But there are also police who are extremely troubled by this, but they don't want to be named or come forward publicly because of that thin blue line, because of that gang mentality that rules our police. So I want you to listen to this. One officer, I'm quoting from this news story from CBC, one officer in an email with a subject heading, an Ottawa police officer who absolutely with the wrist, disagrees with the wristbands wrote that, quote, there are a lot of police officers who agree with me but do not want to step up because of culture. I will always support my fellow officers, the email continues, and we do a very difficult job, but I cannot take sides during a criminal case. Makes sense, right? And yet so many police are willing to do this, are willing to sacrifice whatever is left of their image publicly. 
Another says, uh, to keep it confidential, uh, reality is if I call for help on the road and I am labeled, officers will sit around the corner to see what happens. That's police telling the media that if they oppose this campaign in support of someone con- uh, uh, charged with manslaughter, that their fellow officers will not support or help them. And what do you think about the fact that police are actively out here? It's not their job to state their opinion on a criminal case. Their job is to lay charges. Now, they can't lay charges against themselves, which is why the SIU did this. That's what the special investigations unit's job is. They lay officer, they lay charges against officers and they let the court decide. But before the court can decide, these police officers want to let you know that they have this officer's back. 416-872-1010. I want to know how you feel about this. And this is the thing that I found the most eye-opening about this story. There's a Facebook group that was also like the contents of it were leaked to the media. And I want you to listen to what some of these officers posting on Facebook feel about their colleagues talking to the media and saying they don't support this. And I'm quoting, F you, whoever is leaking S dot 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 to the media, if you do not agree, then do not buy or wear one. So again, F you. Another post to the snitch slash coward who feels the need to go against everything we stand for. Think again the next time you feel the need to contact the media. You're only betraying your colleagues. Your name will surface eventually. It always does. Betrayal of the worst kind. These are police officers who are sworn to serve and protect you, threatening their colleagues because their colleagues dare to say, It's wrong to publicly support someone charged with manslaughter. You want to talk about gang mentality? Those those posts that I read you are from police guys. That's your police. And it's not just Ottawa police who are saying this. It's police across the country who want to get involved. So I have no doubt that the largest police force in the country here in Toronto has members who want to get these wristbands. And the, it's funny, the controversy has actually been about whether or not they should wear them while they're on the job. I don't think that's the issue. I, I don't know why you would even want one of these in the first place. Who is this for? It's, 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 it's I would say it's baffling, but I, I can't say I'm surprised. Peter in East York. Hi, Desmond. Hello. Well, individual policemen are allowed to have an opinion of the outcome of a court case and the evidence involved. However, to wear a wristband like this smacks of fascism. It smacks of, we believe that we should never ever be charged or accused of a crime, no matter what, because we are the police. And uh, that, that very troubling to me. It, it, it's a brown shirt mentality, and it needs to end. Their their uh, commanders, police chiefs, should put an end to this right now. Well, the police chief in Ottawa has said, again, he hasn't said that the bracelets are wrong. All he said is that he doesn't want them to be worn on the job. Uh, Yeah, well, you know what? They shouldn't be distributed at all. They should know better. Thanks for your call, Peter. Appreciate it. You know, the thing that really struck me about these bracelets, too, is that they say united we stand, divided we fall. And that really stuck out for me, because what's the suggestion there? The suggestion is that if a police officer is allowed to be charged with a crime, 
that it really, really looks like he committed, that that somehow ruins police unity. That police being held accountable for their actions is a threat to their unity and solidarity as police officers. So to my last caller's point, exactly. The police have gotten so drunk on their own power that anyone holding an individual officer in check for their actions is now a threat to the entire practice of policing. That's disgusting. And to all the officers who are across the country ordering these bracelets, what in the world are you thinking? I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. Last September in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a brief encounter between a black man, Terrence Crutcher, and a white police officer, Betty Shelby, ended with Terrence Crutcher's death. He was shot by Officer Shelby, who goes on trial next month for manslaughter. She faces four years to life in prison. The shooting was caught on videotape and inflamed the debate about race and policing that's been roiling the nation since Ferguson. It's very likely you have seen video of similar police shootings before, but it's very rare to hear from the officer who pulled the trigger before a jury does. Tonight, Betty Shelby tells us why she shot and killed an unarmed black man and why, she says, almost any police officer in her situation would have done the same. You remember pulling the trigger? I do. It's like slow motion of me bringing my gun up, my finger coming in, and then letting off. And he stopped. And then he just slowly fell to the ground. The shooting took place at dusk on this two-lane road in North Tulsa in a predominantly African-American area. Police cameras captured the climax of the encounter between 42-year-old police officer Betty Shelby and 40-year-old Terrence Crutcher. That's Crutcher in the white shirt walking with his hands up. Shelby, a 10-year veteran of law enforcement, is right behind him with her gun drawn just two minutes after they came face-to-face on the road. Shelby fired her gun. It's hard to see the actual shot on videotape, but from the chopper, you can see Crutcher fall to the ground from the shot to his side. Shot fired! 321, we have shot fired. We have one suspect down. So tell me what I'm not seeing in the video. Up until the time of the shooting, it does appear that he's got his hands in the air. He does have his hands in the air. But Shelby says the video doesn't tell the whole story. It all started 10 minutes earlier. She was on her way to a domestic violence call when she says she saw a man she later would learn was Terrence Crutcher standing in the road. She noticed his size, about 6 feet, 240 pounds, and his demeanor. His hands are just dropped beside him. His chin is resting on his chest, and he's standing there motionless. I thought, hmm, I wonder if he's on PCP. Why did that cross your mind first? Because it was an odd behavior, zombie-like. I, I, it's best I can zombie, zombie-like. Zombie-like. Did you consider him a threat at that time? No. 
Not at that time. So Shelby drove past him and continued on to her call. About 500 feet beyond where she first saw Crutcher, she came upon an abandoned SUV here in the middle of the road. She didn't activate her dashboard camera because she thought this was just a broken down vehicle. But when she got out of her patrol car, she noticed the motor of the SUV was running. I work in a high crime area where every day we get calls of shots fired. I don't think this is just an abandoned vehicle. So I walk on up to the driver's side. I glance in. I don't see anyone. And I notice the windows are down. Did you see any weapons? I wasn't looking for any. I was glancing to see if there was someone hurt. Then, she says, she noticed the man she had seen just moments before walking toward her and the abandoned vehicle. And I say, hey, man, is this your vehicle? And he mumbles something, and I can't understand him. And he starts putting his hands in his pockets. I say, hey, man, take your hands out of your pockets. I'm trying to find out, is this your vehicle? And when I tell him to take his hands out of his pockets, he just immediately puts them in the air. So what's going through your mind? Well, what's going through my mind is what I've experienced before. I've encountered people putting their hands in their pockets, and I find a loaded gun in their pocket. None of the early encounter was recorded on video, but Shelby says her training taught her that people on PCP could turn violent, and she says Crutcher kept reaching into his pocket. That's when I get on the radio and say, I've got a subject that's not showing me his hands. And it was at that point that I drew my weapon in a ready position. It would just be a motion like this if you need to. Was he being belligerent? No. Was he showing any aggression? No. Is it possible that you saw him as more dangerous because he was a large black man? No. What I based everything on was his actions, his behaviors. Race had nothing to do with my decision-making. Shelby says Crutcher kept ignoring her commands, kept walking toward the SUV, even though she had drawn her gun and had ordered him to get on his knees. And he's not doing it. I'm hollering at him, stop! Stop now! And he has now put his hands back up in the air, and he's looking at his vehicle back at me. And you're thinking? I'm thinking he's calculating how he can get to his vehicle to get whatever weapon it is that he's going to get because he didn't find it in his pocket. I was literally a quarter mile away, so I got in the car and drove to the scene quickly. Officer Tyler Turnbow responded to Officer Shelby's radio call. His siren was on, so his dashboard camera was running. The ground-level video of the shooting was recorded from his car. So what did you see when you got there? The first thing I saw when I got there was Mr. Crutcher walking away with his hands up. Betty has him at gunpoint, and I got out of the car, and I can hear her giving him commands, stop, get on the ground, don't go back to your car. All right, Betty Joe, where are you at? 
At the same time, a police helicopter swooped in with two officers on board, a pilot and a spotter, who that day happened to be Officer Betty Shelby's husband. Uh, he's got his hands up there for her now. David Shelby says he could see his wife had a weapon drawn. The pilot saw something else. That looks like a bad dude, too. Did you think he looked like a bad dude? What I saw was an individual that was being non-compliant and apparently and obviously refusing to obey the commands of the officer. As Officer Turnbow ran to assist, he saw that Betty Shelby had drawn her gun, so he grabbed his taser. If the roles had been reversed and she had her taser out, then I would have had my gun out. Did you assess the situation as being dangerous? Yes. It made hair stand up on the back of my neck. I don't know what this guy's doing. Why is he, why is he walking away from her? What are his intentions? Why doesn't he just stop? And so we see his arms are up. Yes. They're behind it. We asked Betty Shelby to look at the video and show us what she saw before the fatal shot. I'm feeling that his intent is to do me harm, and I keep thinking, don't do this. Please don't do this. Don't make this happen. And right there, he's looking back at me. That's what we call targeting. So he's getting my position, my last known location, to retrieve and then shoot. You think he's sizing up the situation to see where you are, how close... If he were to grab a weapon, he would know exactly where to turn to shoot. That's what you're thinking. Uh, Yes. It's unclear what happened in the final moments of Crutcher's life. Officers Shelby and Turnbow were in front of the dashboard camera, and the helicopter was too far away. But Betty Shelby says what's hard to see on the videotape is what she saw. She says Crutcher dropped his arms and reached into the car. His shoulders drop, his arm drops, and he's reaching in, and it's, it's fast. Not for taser, I think. Just that would tell any officer that that man's going for a weapon. You see this on the video? Yes. That's what you say is Mr. Crutcher reaching into the car? Yes. I say with a louder, more intense voice, stop, 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 and he didn't. And that's when I took him. I don't know what Officer Shelby was thinking when she pulled that trigger. Tiffany Crutcher is Terrence Crutcher's twin sister. She says the tape shows her brother was not being aggressive, not being threatening. There is a frame that seems to show that his hands were lowered. And that's what she says alarmed her and made her fear for her life. Of course, she's saying everything that she's supposed to say to defend herself. What we saw on that video is what my dad always taught us to do if we were pulled over by a police officer. Put your hands in the air and put your hands on the car. And my brother did what my father taught us. Was this a case of hands up, don't shoot? Absolutely. It absolutely was. But Officer Shelby says it was a case of a non-compliant subject who she perceived was threatening her life. That's why, she says, she pulled the trigger. Officer Turnbow says he saw the same threat and fired his taser at the same moment. It was the first time Betty Shelby had discharged her gun in the line of duty. If things had worked out differently, he would 
go before a judge, have his day in court. Yes. But as it turns out, you're judge, jury, and executioner on the spot. No. I saw a threat, and I used the force I felt necessary to stop a threat. Do you think I could shoot him in the leg? I could shoot him in the foot? Is there nothing else you could have done? No. And I'm not trained to shoot someone in the foot. We don't train to be cowboys and to be like what they show on the movies. Terrence Crutcher lay bleeding in the street for about two minutes before officers moved in to check him for weapons and administer first aid. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. A vial of PCP was found in the driver's side door pocket, but police found no weapons on his body or in his car. Do you have any regrets about this? I have sorrow that this happened. That this man lost his life, but he caused the situation to occur. So in the end, he caused his own. He caused his death. Yes. Officer Shelby says that your brother's actions caused his own death. What do you say to that? My brother is dead because she didn't pause. And because she didn't pause... My family, we've had to pause. We've had to stop. We've had to lay down every single night with tears in our eyes. There was absolutely no justification whatsoever with all the backup for Officer Shelby to pull that trigger. No justification whatsoever. If I wait to find out if he had a gun or not, I could very well be dead. There's something that we always say. I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. But as it turned out, he did not have a gun. No, he did not. And because of your action, a man is dead. Yes. How do you come to terms with that? It's very difficult. Still? Yes. I never wanted to be in that spot. His actions dictated my actions. You can take your time. I never want to kill anyone. After Tulsa police officer Betty Shelby shot and killed Terrence Crutcher on a two-lane road last September, video of the incident ricocheted around the country. It's unsettling, and at the moment the shot is fired, it's unclear. Where some may see a threatening and non-compliant subject, others may see a non-aggressive man shot with his hands up. How 12 jurors see it when the trial begins in May will determine Betty Shelby's fate. Black Tulsans tell us they'll be watching, it's a tale, they say, they have seen too many times before. There are people in black communities all across the United States who think that white officers overreact when it comes to dealing with black men in general. And they view this through that lens. 
What do you say to those folks? My incident is not a racist incident. I am not racist. Race had no factor in what happened. Race had everything to do with her pulling the trigger that day. Ray Owens has been pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Church, Tulsa's largest predominantly black congregation, for 11 years. Pastor Owens saw police bias in the video and heard it in the words of the pilot. That looks like a bad dude, too. I think the statement represents the same bias against African-American males that caused Betty Shelby to pull the trigger. What do you mean? Betty Shelby very likely viewed Terrence Crutcher as a bad dude. Is she a racist? Does she, you know, uh, have uh, some ill will toward black people? I doubt it. But if she is like so many people in our nation, she assumes too quickly that a black male, especially out on the streets at night, is a threat and not a citizen, is a suspect and not uh, a decent human being. You don't think a white citizen of Tulsa would have been treated the same way? I don't think that young white male would be dead today. These are the final moments of Terrence Crutcher's life. You can see him here walking. His hands are up. Officer Shelby says she thought he was walking back to his car to retrieve a gun. When he got to the driver's side window, she says he reached in and she fired. It turned out Crutcher did not have a weapon. Nobody went to check on him. He laid there. They let him lay there like an animal. Terrence Crutcher's twin sister, Tiffany, says her brother's death fits a tragic narrative of police shooting unarmed black men. I saw Trayvon Martin. I saw Mike Brown. I saw Philando Castile. You know, I saw Tamir Rice. But never in a thousand years would my family, would we have thought that we would be on their side of it. And my brother now, according to social media, is another hashtag. Who was he? He would be deemed in our household the gentle giant. Terrence was laid back, calm, cool. Gospel music was his love. His family says Terrence was a devoted father of four young children but they admit he struggled with drug use. He spent four years in prison for selling five grams of crack cocaine. Officer Shelby didn't know any of this when she encountered him on that road, but she says she did suspect he was on drugs. His autopsy showed he had PCP in his system. Maybe he needed some help. Yes, he needed some help. But he ended up with a fatal gunshot wound to the chest. I've had people tweet and say, your brother deserved to die. Your brother, you know, is a thug. Your brother should have complied or he would still be alive. You know, why didn't he do what the officer asked him to do? What do you say to that question that he should have complied? You know, why did she want him to comply? I'm, I, I'm still curious. What 
crime was he committing? Why were you on the scene? She, she noticed a car in the middle of the road. So she wasn't called to the scene because Terrence was committing a crime. She just noticed a car in the middle of the road and the outcome was my brother was murdered. Wow. Tulsa leaders feared many citizens would have the same reaction. Dewey Bartlett was mayor at the time. He remembers the call he got from police chief Chuck Jordan. He said that there was a, a shooting and uh, it could have been one of those situations uh, where they had their hands in the air. This is the police chief talking to you shortly after getting to the scene. Yes. At that point, I went, oh boy, this is not good. Were you concerned that this might trigger civil unrest? Oh, sure. Sure. Because we'd seen it before several times when this type of, of event happens, when it's captured on video. Four days after the Crutcher shooting... He's not going to do anything to you guys. Police in Charlotte shot a black man. That city erupted, igniting fears in Tulsa that this same thing could happen. So the mayor and police chief called Pastor Owens and other religious and community leaders together to show them the video and to help brace the city for the storm they feared was coming. What was the mood in the room? What was the oh. reaction to the video? When it showed the gentleman uh, shot and falling down, there was a audible... A gasp. Absolutely. It was very difficult to watch. The gas actually filled the room. We, could, we couldn't believe it. Was your reaction the general reaction of the people in the room? Oh, very much so. We were all really angry. The video added to already tense relations between Tulsa police and the black community. Hands up! Hands up! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! There's a strong current of an us or them mentality. Really? I do hear that, especially from young men, African-American men, who will still tell me I'm afraid when a police officer uh, comes up behind me or drives uh, behind me. That's a problem. A long-standing problem in Tulsa. In 1921, this city saw the worst racial violence in American history. It started when an armed white mob gathered to lynch a black man accused of assaulting a white woman. As many as 300 black Tulsans were killed, and an estimated 10,000 left homeless. Time has not healed all wounds. The mayor told us he thought the best response to the Crutcher shooting was complete transparency. The police chief rushed to release the video to the public. He also released Betty Shelby's name. I want to assure our community, and I want to assure all of you and people across the nation who are going to be looking at this, we will achieve justice, period. One day, when the glory comes. And they ask black pastors to appeal for peace. I think I reserve the right to be angry and upset at being a black man in an untimely time as this. More than 1,000 people of all races came to a vigil at Metropolitan Baptist Church. It was our attempt to give people a voice, to give people a place to say, I'm mad, I'm hurting, I'm tired of this, no more. And that was the same sentiment that I think was in the minds and the hearts of the people who were breaking glass windows in Charlotte. They were saying, I'm mad. 
In Tulsa, there were no broken windows, no violence at all. Officer Shelby. Six days after the shooting, District Attorney Steve Kunzweiler filed charges against Betty Shelby. He accused her of overreacting when she shot Terrence Crutcher. The charges were filed before the police investigation of the shooting was complete. I've never been so scared. The lead detective told us he would have found Shelby's actions justified. Shelby was placed on unpaid leave. When her name was made public, she says she felt as if the whole town had turned on her. And we're telling them to fire! 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 Officer Shelby believes she was sacrificed to keep the peace in Tulsa. My situation was no different than, I don't know whether I should say this, than a lynch mob coming after me. And I had those very threats. So You've been much threatened? Yes. Death threats? Yes. I had to leave my home. I had to grab up my family and leave and go to a safe place. Betty Shelby told us she became a police officer to help people, and she wants to get back to the job she loves. Are you going to go after some bad guys? While she awaits trial, she finds comfort playing with her grandson. There you go. She faces four years to life for the killing of Terrence Crutcher. Betty Shelby's husband, Officer David Shelby, recorded the video from the air. Shot fired! However you perceive this video, it's an American tragedy. To some extent, I think there were two victims that day, I think. Terrence Crutcher and Betty Shelby. And Betty is a victim of what? The social and political climate in our country right now. It's almost like there's a war on police. And I think that that's what's happened to Betty. We need our men and women in blue. But at the end of the day, they're not warriors. They're supposed to be our guardians. She believes there was a rush to judgment. The video showed everything. It doesn't have uh, a political affiliation. It's not red, it's not blue. It's not black, it's not white, it is what it is. And what we saw was my brother with his hands up. And he was tased and shot simultaneously. Officer Shelby was charged with manslaughter. Are you satisfied with those charges? I am. I don't believe she woke up that morning and said, I'm going to go and kill Terrence Crutcher. I believe that she choked and she pulled the trigger and she killed him. Overreacted? Absolutely. Was Terrence Crutcher's an avoidable death? Yes. Did this have to play out the way it did? No. What would have changed things? If he would have complied if he would have communicated with me, if he would have just done as I asked him to do, we would not be here. You and I would never have met, and no one would ever know my name. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, 
in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 8th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in, dial in, share your views, uh, suggestions. If you have thoughts on things that have taken place over the past uh, seven days or so, dial in the number 641 seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, before we get to folks who dial in, the cows is listener supported counter racist radio. If you would like to support the program, you can visit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner if you are not into paypal drop me an email and i will get you a physical mailing address uh, all the folks out there uh, please verify uh, before you mail anything to make sure that you have accurate current address uh, did move at the beginning of the year so some folks might have the old mailing address uh, just Drop an email to verify to be certain. Uh, our wish list also for all the folks. Uh, thanks to everyone who has invested, supported us for eight plus years. I hope the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Wish list is uh, linked on the blog. I know some people had said they had a difficult uh, time locating uh, my wish list at Amazon.com. Uh, it's under Gusty Renegade and you can just get it off the blog. Should be linked Amazon Gus's Amazon wish list at the blog. Couple quick things and then we will get to callers uh again. Uh this is not per se looking to get folks to listen or even participate in the book club even though I do think that is uh constructive, but Coretta Scott King's autobiography is amazing. Uh, I'm so glad that I followed the recommendation from the New Orleans Tribune. Great recommendation. They wrote, uh, had just lots and lots of praise about the book. And I see why uh, we are still pretty. I think we're starting on chapter six uh, this coming Friday. It is spectacular. Uh, I think you will learn a lot. It is great. You should tune in this coming Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Quickly from the clips. I'm reminded Frequently, I think it came up when we had Dr. Cambon on the program earlier this year. The term victim, many black people, many non-white people in total reject saying, you know, hey, I'm not a victim. I don't think of myself as a victim. I'm not, don't call me a victim of racism. And I've stated consistently that is, you know, significant for many reasons. One of them being that it's not just that you were victimized, you know, we're not talking about something that happened to your great grandparents and grandparents and parents, even though that's true too. But I mean, you were victimized like 
within the last 30 seconds. You're being victimized constantly in the system of racism, white supremacy. But that aside, while you have so many victims who reject thinking of themselves as a victim, I think that gives away some of their agency. So I have been told just within the news clips that you heard this week, you had a non-white person victim of racism in India saying, hey, we are not racist against Africans. We're victims. We're not racist against Africans. Yeah, you know, might have been a few black people got uh, mauled and beaten on, but we are not racist. We are victims. And then the suspected race soldier in Oklahoma uh, that's going to be going on trial for the execution of Terrence Crutcher. She is a victim. Terrence Crutcher's a victim. I am a victim. It is a man that is standard. I hear that is generally the way that I hear racism talked about that white people are victims. Black people are victims. Everybody is a victim of racism. And then, as I said, when I talk to black people, non-white people frequently, it will be don't call me a victim. I think that's part of the problem. I could be in error. The crowd think we have listeners uh, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. I don't know. Uh, If folks have been paying attention to the situation with the bridge fire that happened at the end of last week and major uh, damage, they're blaming it on uh, a black male crack addict saying that he set a chair on fire, basically, and that caused all of this damage, this bridge, uh, this piece of the interstate to collapse and this major fire and all that. Um, and, And even... Yes, there were three people uh, that uh, Clinton Yates was talking about it in the news clips. There were three people. There have been three people that have been charged in this, but they're making the, the, the kingpin of this crime, this black male crack addict, uh, saying that he did it all. He was the one who masterminded this fire, which is so bogus. In fact, uh, this is a metaphor, but I'm just bringing it up because someone wrote this in a couple, uh, I think two weeks ago. This does not pass the red face test at all. You're going to tell me a homeless black male set a chair on fire and that caused an interstate, a major interstate in a capital city to catch fire and fall apart. Hmm. (laughs) It does not pass the red face test at all and further my code from now on anything that comes up where white people are making some sort of accusation against black people where crack is involved i'm just from now on out that is an act of racism and that's that until proven otherwise until and i mean there would have to be irrefutable tons of evidence i mean like more evidence than you could read Uh, If you had unlimited time, the data would just have to be endless that this is what it is. Yes, crack is involved. Yes, black people are being accused, but there's no racism. Everything here is accurate. There's no deception, no harm. It just happens to be that black people and crack are involved in this accusation. Unless that is the case, I'm just going to take it that this is a major act of racism anytime because the same thing with crack babies. If folks remember, we talked about this with Dorothy Roberts, uh, where they just made up all of that and then... And it takes 20 years before it comes. Oh, wait a minute. We didn't even have any science. We just said you 
niggas having children were crack babies and, you know, passed all our laws and made you all look bad for 20 years and whoops, didn't even have any science to base that on. Moving forward, uh, I will ask metaphors. It was great. We had some incredible metaphors just within that 60 minutes piece on the execution of Mark Crutcher. It was a lynch mob, they said coming after her didn't you hear that a lynch war on cops she said after she's executed an unarmed citizen who was a zombie metaphor the metaphors the metaphors i say that every week white people routinely they use metaphors they deliberately there was a lynch mob they will deliberately make comparisons analogies similes that they know are not true They do this all the time. This is one of the major ways that they practice white supremacy on an everyday basis. You heard about three of them within about five minutes in that uh, 60 uh, minutes segment. Non-white people, we have been educated uh, by racist man, racist woman, (laughs) racist child. We have been educated by them. So we do a lot of the same things that they do. That's what's being modeled worldwide. And also, we are still learning as we, you know, make an effort to understand racism, white supremacy. Sometimes we have not come to a conclusion. Uh, sometimes we're still uh, trying to figure out the best way to articulate our ideas or counter racist suggestions. So sometimes we'll use a metaphor to convey our thoughts, and it does not minimize confusion. It simply adds to the problem of not having quality communication so if we could not use metaphors just speak as directly as we can to what it is we want to say explicit right exactly as much as we can be uh, to whatever view it is that we're trying to express I will prompt about that we could take about five minutes to express what it is we want to say and that way everyone will get an opportunity to share uh, every once everyone has spoken one time, then we'll go back and if you have an additional question or thought or what have you, uh, then we should be able to include that as well. Uh, if you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, just helps maintain the quality of the program. Uh, that way you can uh, unmute yourself when you want to speak and then mute your line again. If you know, you know, it's other folks around and that sort of thing. Right on. Uh, First few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, Feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, It's it's good to finally call back in after a while, man. Um, I've been, I picked up a part time job. I've been working a lot, but I've been listening to the shows and, and, this show, I mean, tonight, man, it was, it was incredible. Oh, man. But um, an observation I, I made this week about um, Bill O'Reilly and his sexual um, harassment um, allegations. I mean, it's incredible how um, he was able to maintain his show after all these allegations and so for like 13 years of I mean, not 13 years, but what it was, a payout of $13 million to keep people quiet. And Bill Cosby lost everything. 
his whole pu public persona would, would just shatter. And I have been watching some of the um, Cosby um, clips on YouTube, and it just, well, at this age now, you know, being 30, it's just, I would let my child watch that show. I mean, it, it, was, it was such positive reinforcement. And it's a shame that, you know, it's not even in, um, we can't even watch the reruns anymore. And, and you know, and I thought about what, what Neil Fuller said, if you don't um, know, well, I can't say it exactly, but the racism is, is, is it's incredible um, how that they destroy Mr. Cosby. I mean, you know, destroyed him and Bill O'Reilly was able to keep his show. But those, those um, <laughs> the one, the one at Atlanta, man. I, <laughs> while you were talking, I was just laughing <laughs> because, come on, man, that's incredible. A, a crack. <laughs> Man, a crack addict was responsible for destroying the infrastructure of Atlanta. Come on, man, that's that, that's insane. Um, man, it was a great show, to, um, great clips tonight, man. Now I'm you my line. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Hopefully, everyone's having as good a night as they can. Um, wonderful clips to speak on the incident i-85 i'm i'm very confused by that because every time there's an accident on a major interstate or highway so someone gets hurt someone dies i mean not that i want people to die and get hurt but someone dies someone gets hurt somebody falls through and i went online you know to read an article about it about it and it said that this happened around 6 50 or 7 o'clock which is towards the evening Evening um, rush hour, and I live near Atlanta, and I've dri dri driven through Atlanta several times in the day and night. These highways are always packed. So it doesn't make sense to me how this happened and no one was hurt. I'm thinking they were planning, a, either they were planning to close it anyway, and this, and this happened or something, but it makes no sense to me that this, this fire, whatever it caused, the infrastructure, especially knowing that the overall infrastructure in the United States is collapsing anyway, if this fire did cause it, it was years and years and years and decades in the making. So that doesn't make sense to me. And about the the sister of Mr. Crutcher, um, she said, you know, I saw the other people and I didn't think it would be me. And I think a lot of times we do that I think we get a heightened awareness for a little while, then it goes away, and we always have to be careful to stay aware of situations. And I'm not saying he wasn't or she wasn't, but to just remember that we, if we're not a victim at that moment, it can potentially happen. And I know me, I take it very seriously. I work at a, a university with predominantly white people, and I've told them, students to their face, I go, this is a white school. Y'all have school shootings here. I have to be aware um, so they know they know where I stand, and I told them I'm my only child, and my mother will miss me, so I will leave you behind. Um, so just always be aware. Thank you. Right on, right on. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all, have commentary. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, how are you all doing today? Right, poor. All right. <laughs> yep. So let's see. Just like you said, a lot of metaphors today. One of them was, of course, lynch mobs, American tragedy, the media referred to it as. But I could not tell what they were referred to when they said American tragedy. Was it the lynching of Terrence Crutcher or was it the fact that the officer had to leave because she felt unsafe? I'm not sure. Um, of course, war on cops, though no cop died. If he had complied with the officer's commands, he'd still be alive. Charles Kinsey in Florida would argue otherwise. Um, the fact that she says she had she felt unsafe, so she had to pack up her um, pack up her family and leave town. Well, sorry, black people, I suppose. And then, of course, the crackhead, supposed crackhead, who burned down an interstate. Now, with American infrastructure, one of the things that they have right, uh, the biggest problem they have right now is funding American infrastructure. There's not enough taxes even collected to even cover the maintenance of basic infrastructure in the country. Personally, I would surmise that a whole lot of these kind of accidents, or supposed accidents, or maybe crackhead accidents, will start happening around the country because a lot of the infrastructure is probably on its last leg and very close to just falling apart. And maybe this was just an opportunity to blame someone, and there's going to be a whole lot more people to blame as time goes on. And I will mute my line. Last leg is a metaphor. Uh, I was going to say, though, with the infrastructure uh, piece, I I have been saying that, as have others, that there's going to be more of this sort of thing. They had the dam uh, situation in California, if folks remember earlier uh, this year. It's just going to be more of this. Uh, Dams, roads, just everything connected to public infrastructure is just going to get worse. Uh, they've said that you have an aging white population and then a increasing non-white population and that whites are going to be uh, increasingly resistant to funding public infrastructure. Like we don't care about having, you know, chunks of the interstate fall out if it's going to be particularly if it's going to be in a city full of Negroes like Atlanta. You know, Hey, whatever. <laughs> like let all the roads uh, fall that you got. I think I, it's been a while since I've lived in Atlanta, but I think. In the northern part of Atlanta, I think you have whites that want to secede from Atlanta anyway. So whatever, let all the roads fall down. I mean that literally, let them all fall down. Uh, I will hush myself, though. Other folks that uh, have commentary that we have not heard from, uh, if you have commentary you want to share, feel free. Hey, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, man. Real quick greetings to everybody, man. Uh, man, I had one thought, Gus. I, I was thinking to myself, I said, man, in eight years, and, and all these clips we done heard, I, I wonder how many how many races we done ran through. You know, how, how long it's going to take before before uh, every white person on the planet to be on the news for being racist. School that noise, but the, and then the last thing I wanted to say was, man, the white the the, the uh, white police lady, I don't know, man, it's just somebody when she started crying and talking about she didn't need for this to happen, right? It just kind of made me feel kind of like I want to throw up or something, you know, like it, 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 it gave me a feeling, and uh, 
Yeah, you know, she she did what she did. She could have just said what she said, how she really feel. But that's the thing, man. Crackers love to want to act like it's something other than what it is, man. But, you know, with that, I mute my line, man. Thank you for taking the call, bro. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from uh, have commentary. Other folks that we have not heard from. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, on the uh, the incident of the uh, black male who was, uh, in my opinion, murdered by the uh, white female race soldier, I will start off by saying that uh, as most of us know that we're on the global system of racism, white supremacy. We all were born in it. White people, as well as their victims. In that regard, in that context, uh, white people are not uh, absent-minded or and or uh, ignorant to the global system of racism, white supremacy. They know they know their uh, their place in that uh, context as far as thought, speech, and action. And uh, she made the choice. They don't make you uh, join the police force, uh, but they, she volunteered to join the police force uh, with the idea in mind of not being a police officer but being a race soldier. And in turn, she is aware that you can easily victimize non-white people. Uh, and I would say they all, she also knows that uh, because of the global system of racist white supremacy, we have been damaged to whereas we're bound to make mistakes. We're bound to make mistakes that they can take advantage of and abuse us as non-white people. And she certainly took advantage of that manner. And by the way, she's also seemingly is an incompetent person that happened to have the job as an enforcement official. Uh, as a uh, firefighter that have done just about anything you can think of uh, in the line of duty as far as a firefighter is concerned, uh, I agree from what I've heard uh, that, yes, you should suspect that uh, this black male uh, did not, it, it was more than just this black male involvement into this entire ex, uh, portion of the expressway falling to the ground. He has to take a hell of a fire for that portion, that much of, a, of anything, let alone a, a small portion of an expressway to go down as opposed to that big section that went down. Now, I also heard that there was some materials that was being stored underneath the expressway. That's not uncommon because of the incompetency of a city or, you know, just not having a means of knowing where to store the equipment at. A lot of times in major cities, especially, they store materials underneath expressways. We know, and they know that people stay are forced to be have to stay on these expressways also. Uh, but they, they, you know, as far as that concerned, it doesn't factor in the matter of what they want to do. And uh, 
it had to have a hell of a fire, much more than just whatever they accused him of setting on fire for all of that section to fall down. I can guarantee you that, especially when everybody, if you saw the, the, the amount of smoke, black smoke that was coming from the expressway at one point in time before it did fall down, it was much more than what they were accusing him of doing. And that's all I have to say for right now. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele, and I am uh, currently in uh, Pomona. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, um, the story about the, um, the expressway collapse is uh, particularly distressing in the way that they are, or the suspected white supremacists are immediately dragging out um, a black person and have a, um, I don't know if this is a metaphor, but it's uh, cartoonish, the story that they're coming out with. Uh, it's, it's like something that you would see in uh, an episode of uh, South Park or Family Guy. This is something that's uh, beyond, um, beyond uh, uh, hack racist. I mean, it's like out of something that uh, you would see written on Stormfront or something. And um, oddly enough, in the uh, portion of the highway that is adjacent to the portion that collapsed, they found a skate park, a well-designed, fully functional, uh, I would say 75% completed skate park that was in the middle of being constructed um, underneath that highway. There was a pallet of... Uh, in this video that they showed about this skate park underneath this highway, there were pallets of concrete found, building materials, um, mattresses, all types of uh, flammable materials were found in, an, in the area that was perfectly adjacent to this uh, um, collapse. I suspect that if they do more investigation, which I doubt will happen, um, they will find that uh, that this skate park probably had something to do with the fire that occurred there. And um, in the video that I saw, the news report that covered this, um, a suspected racist uh, with a, uh, a last name that sounded uh, like it had Spanish origin, um, explained that this skate park is a, quote, work of art. Uh, and it needs to be preserved. And uh, the news made it sound like there was going to be a deal reached with the uh, highway authority and the um, people who designed the skate park. So, you know, I have no idea what it is that is actually occurring underneath that bridge, but I think it's very telling that uh, suspected racists are gleeful that, uh, you know, of what has been, quote, unquote, discovered um, underneath this bridge. And the fact that they're using the word discovered uh, to describe this, uh, the, the revealing of this project is, um, I, I, it's beyond insulting. What is beyond, also beyond insulting is um, this Terrence Crusher situation. I think it's the highest form of disrespect, this killing. I mean, the, the past few killings have been really bad and really brutal, really disgusting. But this one is just on camera. 
it looks like it was even planned. I mean, they had a helicopter out for this. They filmed the whole thing. They set it up where they said, oh, bad dude. Um, they had a husband and wife duo on the mission. This is, I, I mean, it's insane. I'm, I, you know, when I was, li- I, I was listening to that uh, for the first time, I, I specifically avoided going too deep into this um, case because I, I, I don't know. This is uh, the way that she described the, the shooting, the way that she described how uh, it was his fault that she pulled the trigger on him. I, I'm, I, I can't even formulate words with what I want to say. I know it's being recorded, so nope. All right. And also, um, uh, I, I have found a news story that uh, I found out that um, white supremacists have designed uh, an injectable that allows them to uh, generate more, mel- more melanin. Um, they call it melanotan. And uh, there is a, uh, I guess, a model or uh, I guess a body modification enthusiast that uh, has um, injected uh, large amounts of this substance into uh, her body. And uh, she also got modifications on her lips. So she looks like a racist caricature of what white supremacists claim black people look like in their drawings. She looks like an A. Wyatt Mann cartoon. It's, uh, it's repulsive. Um, I, I encourage you to um, look up the pictures if you want uh, some amusement, but I, it's, uh, it's beyond, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's really, really disgusting what, I, what they have done. Um, I suspect that they're going to need to start injecting uh, melanotan into their skin um, because of the conditions that they have created with their uh, anthropogenically caused global warming and global climate change. And uh, I guess I will mute my line at this time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, all right, I'm out. For sure. Uh, other folks that uh, have a hand up that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Can I, Can be, I be heard? Uh, heard both of you. Go ahead. All right, thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus, the host, uh, callers, listeners, fellow victims of racism. Uh, it's Mark in North Carolina. Um, and... I guess the the first thing that strikes me, of course, the last uh, story with the uh, Terrence Crutcher uh, murder and the um, race soldier, uh, Officer Shelby, or Enforcement Officer Shelby. Uh, one of the things that struck me about um, it, just in the in the clip that we heard, um, I, I just found it really interesting that her husband, who was in the helicopter or whoever the helicopter pilot was, described uh, Terrence Crutcher as a bad dude saying that looks like a bad dude and a few seconds later in the clip she was with her grandson (laughs) i guess they were playing in the backyard or whatever the case was and she said you're gonna get some bad guys i found that really interesting um another aspect of it um is that 
I noticed how they incorporated the uh, the preacher at the church into it, and you know, not to disparage uh, another victim, um, but when they asked the preacher and they asked also Terrence Crutcher's sister, uh, do they think that there was some type of ill intent or whatever the case was involved in the in the uh, in this murder? Uh, they both had a similar response, saying that um, we don't think that she woke up this morning with the intention to kill uh Terrence Crutcher. Um I yeah, I don't I don't know what to say about that. It's just it it really kind of goes to show um the level of confusion that we have as victims um to not think of how dangerous the system of white supremacy is and the intent of so many suspected racists um, in, in everything that they do, in every area of activity, in every aspect. And this is what they they live and they breathe and they thrive off of every single day is the mistreatment of people who they classify as not white. Um, I, I didn't know that a chair was so flammable that it could burn down an entire highway um, that, or a portion of a highway. That, that doesn't make any sense not logical um and uh, i guess something i wanted to touch on in terms of uh the the you know indians and and the nigerians um i don't know everything that i could communicate about it because it's not a lot that i know about it as well um however um i know that there i don't know if the caste system in india came first before white supremacy or the whole concept of, you know, uh, mistreatment based on color. I'm not certain. I haven't researched enough, uh, but I just find that really interesting. Also, um, where I'm located in North Carolina, there was a news story a couple of days ago uh, that uh, it was a, a shop owner he, who was, I, I guess he was classified as, as Indian or he was some type of immigrant or quote unquote immigrant. And he came from an area of the world uh, known as Asia. And a black man, a black male, came up to the shop window at night. They had him on surveillance footage where he took a brick and broke the door, the window on the door of the shop with a brick and had a note attached on the brick saying something to the effect of, you know, go back to your country and it was signed from white people, from white America. Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with this story, uh, but the other thing that I found really interesting is um, how they they portrayed everything and they they classified it automatically as a as a hate crime. But in all of these cases, you know, Terrence Crutcher, all these other cases they're not even classified as a hate crime. Even with Dylan Storm Roof, I don't think I've heard that classified as a hate crime. Um, so I think it just kind of goes to further evidence uh, what we deal with on a daily basis and um, what is against us. Uh, thank you for taking the call. I'll meet you online. Thank you. Yes, sir. The other caller who spoke up simultaneously, you can proceed. I just did want to interject. Dylan Roof was uh, convicted of a hate crime uh, during his federal uh, hearing. 
at the end of 2016. The only reason I know that is because I, I too thought that he often is not even talked about as someone who committed a hate crime, uh, but he was convicted in federal court of uh, hate crime. The caller who spoke up simultaneously. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to Gus, the host, and to all the callers tonight. Peace and love to your families and your homes, as always. I'm always glad to join a live conversation. Lord knows I need it. Um, you guys kind of re-energized me after uh, a week of dealing with the racists in my community. Um, first things first, uh, to the caller's question on racism in India. Aryanism which is considered the philosophical underpinning for racism, was believed by the Anglo-Saxons to have originated in India uh, via uh, the caste system. In fact, it is believed to be the underpinning for that caste system, where the darker melanated people are part of the untouchables at the bottom of that caste system. They took the ideas from that caste system and uh, instituted it uh, in the modern racist system. I suggested, I think, last autumn a book called The Underground History of Public Education. The author goes into a bit of that. I've also found several books uh, previously unknown to the public on Arianism particularly Aryan philosophy and the stories associated with Arianism, which gives root to that philosophy on archive.org. So you can find them there. On the police shooting that uh, was involved in uh, the batch of clips, I find it highly interesting that this police officer gave this interview prior to going to trial. There must be a belief among her counsel that she is not going to be found guilty, no matter what she says, because no lawyer in their right mind, which may be a metaphor, but no lawyer is going to expose their client to the dangers of making a statement in front of a national audience that could be used against them either by the jury or in court by the um, defense prior to the trial. That will not happen. So there must be a belief that she is not going to be convicted and she is not going to spend any time in jail. Um, this also, her trial puts feminism on trial in the idea that black women and white women are similar in the racist mind. Uh, I have known many white women who right now today want to be police officers and want to be involved in military activities. All of these white women frequently date black men. And I have witnessed them treating those black men as if they were nothing but pets. 
So I think uh, this should be watched very carefully for that. I will end on a bit of good news, but um, the piece that you played on genetics and the creation of superhuman strength reminded me of an article that I happened to glance at from National Geographic, um, which I think the present volume has on its title cover, The Next Evolution of Man, where it shows an ape, a white person, and then an undeniably colored person with robotics attached to his head. Um, which is uh, which was quite interesting. I didn't get to actually read the article, but that picture said a lot to me. Finally, good news. Uh, at my job, I work with a number of Filipino women who were brought over here either um, for work because of their education or most of them to marry white men who then have them take care of children which they have with them and uh, one specifically was basically a, a a animal for everybody who she worked around she was just this pet that everyone you know carried around and over the last year and a half of working with her she has really found her confidence and when they say something wrong to her, instead of just laughing it off, which is what she did before, she tells them about it. So I'm very proud of her on that, and I hope we can uh, develop more of that um, in the future. Thank you very much. I will mute my line. Uh, other can I speak? For... Yes, sir. Okay. Um, greetings to the cows and the listeners. I'm gonna, first, I'll start off with... Um, about the um, people in India and Nigerians. Uh, they do have a problem with the Dalit people, or they have, or they have a problem due to their dark skin and Dravidians. Um, and I think from um, Nigerians, it's probably a media, um, probably a media broadcast images from like the U.S. and right, um, I don't say the U.S., but I'll say racism, how they, the images that portrayed universally of that sort. Um, my next topic will be on um, the movie about the Black Panthers that was done about the Black Panthers in Britain with Idris Abella and somebody and um, the writer Ridley, I think that's his name. How they had the protagonist instead of being a black woman, it was an um, Asian female, and there's been a role about that. But then a um, writer whose name is Whitley, um, he's a black male who's married to um, an Asian female. So he that was his reason for putting an Asian female instead of a black female as protagonist in the movie, which is I think is very interesting. Um, another topic is the racial dullness. She's going to South Africa to talk about transracialism or transracialism, if that's even a, a, a term. Um, another thing is um, there's a women's conference, a women's world conference in New York this past week or weekend. Um, and there was only like oh, 31 presenters. There was only three that were black, which is telling us, I saw an article about that. Um, I guess that's it in my rundown of the articles that I've heard. Um, I guess that's it. I'll, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Huh. Interesting. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, you have commentary. The number again is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. 
press star six one if you would like to participate. Folks we have not heard from have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. I have some commentary about um, just the system of racism in general, and also the clips. Uh, the clips were um, showing that racism or what white people are doing to non-white people is global. It's a global thing, and it's all coordinated. They're all doing it together, all the white people, all the, I call them ice albinos. Um, uh, Dr. Kamal Kambon calls them cesspoolians. I'll call them cesspoolians too. They're these evil creatures, whatever, maybe evil is not the, these, these horrible creatures are killing us and they're doing it all together. Um, and the, uh, in India, the caste system, uh, I had read a book that um, I was in, uh, I was, while I was in uh, college in one of my classes, a uh, religion class, world religion class, I read a book that mentioned that the, uh, I think they called them Aryans, but I thought they were talking about white people in particular, had, had gone over to India, uh, to the northern part, uh, killed out a lot of the people, raped the women, changed the color of the women, or of, the, of the people, you know, from raping the women, um, changed the color of the deities to a, a um, non-melanated uh, creature. And change the words to the um, change the words to all of the sacred texts. The same thing they did to our text. So Christianity, the Bible, they they did the same thing. They just changed they changed a lot of the words. So a lot the Bible is not the inerrant word of God because it's it this white people have their hands in it. The Quran is the same thing. So everything has been affected by white people. White people are polluting the air. They're polluting the uh, if the air is polluted. All the food is polluted, is, is poison, um, and the water is poison, everything that you can do. So uh, what, they're, what they're doing is it's a cumulative uh, damage, and, and the accumulative damage kills you. So, like, in workplace racism, uh, uh, the, the um, broadcast of workplace racism on this particular show, um, people will talk about uh, things, things that white people are doing to them, and it's causing health elements and uh you know people are uh, uh, one lady well i i can i can say a lot of things just go listen to the the um a workplace racism but people are, are getting these these health problems and the thing is is white people know that it's, it's accumulative they know that each of them are, are are taking um i'm trying to think of the word that's not a a um metaphor but they're they're all they, they are all doing something. They're, they're all doing something to us. And each one of them, they know that it's an cumulative effect that's going to kill us. So everybody that has died since white people have come into power, everybody in the world, every single generation has died because of white people. They've all died before their time. Um, all of us. Have, everybody who's died since white people have come into power has died because of white people. And we have to... We have to relieve that particular problem, white people. We need to relieve the world of that problem. Uh, it's a continual invasion. They've come to America. They've come to Africa. They've come to all over the world, and they're still there, and they won't leave. And then they keep, like, the things they do inside these countries, we call it racism. Um, we call it, you know, if, they, if, if, we, if we can see them harming us, then we'll call it racism. But the fact that they're here and they haven't left, you know, that, 
that's the problem. They're, they're still killing us. They're, they're here to kill us. They make babies so that they can kill us, so they can raise their population to kill us and replace our population. I would just say that um, I think that uh, people should check the archives of every time a white woman has appeared on this show. It shows a lot of information. Um, Jennifer Harvey was a, a white a creature that had appeared, a white lady who had appeared on the show. And um, I had made a comment that uh, she she laughed before a particular statement. She had actually laughed after the statement. I said that she laughed before she said uh, she was um, working on dismantling racism. But it was actually right after that statement she laughed. But I just point that out to say that, you know, none of them are serious. It's, this is all a game, and you just have to pay attention. And that um, we should speak them out of existence. We should think them out of existence. And that we should eradicate them eradicate their, their existence from this earth, we, actually, we absolutely have to solve this problem. It is killing us currently. It is killing every one of us. And, and it's a serious problem, and we will solve the problem, and we have to do it immediately. Thank you. Other folks that we have not heard from, the other folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all, See, I see uh, Karma has a hand up, but for some reason it's being uh, troublesome uh, about allowing me to get to your hand. Uh, I'm not sure what the issue is, but I do see uh, your hand. Car- oh, there it is. Uh, is that you, Karma? Yes, it is. Can you hear me? Your volume is a little low. If you could speak up for us, that would be great. Uh, see, that's why I haven't been calling, because I can't figure out how to make it any louder. Well, um, that's just, I'll speak, that's I'll good. Speak just speak loud. That's great. Okay. All right. Um, I missed pretty much everything in the beginning, but I will say this. I did notice a, a gentleman from Asia, and I did see his check. I was shocked because they only hire one another in the stores and everything, and he was making $12,000 a year. So that allowed me to rethink some of my preconceived notions about, you know, them paying each other, all of them owning the store, being family. I mean, those those are those are not living wages, twelve thousand dollars a year. Anyway, that's just something that I happen to see. Um, and um, in the elementary schools where we are, where they are replacing all of the non-white teachers with white teachers, and they're getting ready to have the state assessment test. So I, they brought in a, a real-life motivational coach. These are elementary kids. A motivational coach, there was a band. They had cheers, a pep rally, uh, all of this so that they can do the state-sanctioned uh, achievement test. And I did speak to a couple of teachers, and they said, well, you know, I told them I wasn't teaching to that test. If they just let me teach the children to read, then they would pass that test, and they fired me. Same thing with another black teacher. I think that what they're trying to do is do whatever they have to do to keep the children from learning how to read and write, because that really is the key to learning everything else. They're trying to teach them how to take the test without actually teaching them how to read and write. Kind of like uh, the French 
when they went into, where was that, in Africa, they said, oh, we'll teach you French and you will be able to go anywhere and communicate, and they just taught them Patois. And just like when they uh, says, oh, when they say, oh, you can do music, they don't teach you how to read music. They just uh, teach you how to do music without actually teaching you how to read it. And I think that's what they're doing with the children in the United States. They're trying to figure out a way to get them to pass these tests so that they can get their money from the state without actually teaching them how to read and write and be competitive with their children. I think that is it. That's why they teach to the test and don't teach them how to read and write. Next, um, this morning, my pet peeve with those doggone bicyclists coming out, I came out and they were all in front of my great grandmother's driveway. She's, you know, she's long gone, but, but, you know, they just, they just squatting there and they were just congratulating each other and making little noisemakers and bells and just, you know, coming out of their suburban enclaves to just ride in my, my part of the world. And I, 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 you know, a couple of them got killed last year. I just think that people are through with them. But um, anyway, but today, today, and this was wonderful. I was, I came, I was stopped. Um, black guy on a horse, he had on the orange vest. He came and he stopped traffic. Then the other guys with orange vests, they all stopped traffic. And then it was the largest trail ride, all black people I had ever seen. These people were in major trucks. I mean, they had trailers that were like two stories high. You would see people on $20,000 horses, and they were riding like nobody's business. And then every once in a while, a trailer would go by. It was full of black people. They were partying. They were dancing. They were drinking. And white people were lining up longer and longer. So the white woman gets out. And she tells the guy in the desk, hey, you need to let us buy. So he signals, and up comes a black, a black enforcement official on an ATV. And he goes, is there a problem here? And the white lady backs off, and she goes back to her truck. So then the enforcement official leaves, and, and so all these people are going by, and I'm waving. I'm having a ball. I have never seen such an enclave of money in my life. This is a, this is a lot of money. But this, now we've been sitting there for 10 minutes. And a white guy sees that this white woman has some any progress, and the police officer is gone, but he left his ATV. So he goes up. He says, listen, this is not how you do this. You need to stop this trail ride and let all of these people go by. And the guy on the trail ride waves his hand again, and up comes another black police officer in a police car. And he goes, is there a problem? So they made all of those white people sit there for 15 minutes, and it was just the most incredible display. I felt so good. So I just thought I would share that. Black people doing really, really well and just not afraid to have fun with one another. I counted literally thousands of riders and maybe six white people. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating report from uh, Karma. I know uh, race soldiers, uh, they are always furious uh, when it looks like black people might have somehow find a way found a way to enjoy themselves and at least have one or two hours where they can say hey we can we can step back and enjoy some of the things that we have uh, accomplished under horrendous conditions that race soldiers oh man hate to see that sort of thing uh other i think there is one other person I'm having some difficulty getting uh, your line open for some reason. It looks like you're on a block number. Uh, but I think I got uh, everybody else. I th well, 
I'll double check. Is anybody that we missed? Anybody who has a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, uh, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to us, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I wanted to make mention of, like I've seen two stories uh, having to do with um, uh, education. There was a middle school down here in, I think it's Hernando County, Florida, where there's, and there's been a trend of these, um, like homework assignments or classroom assignments with a racial theme to it. And the way the assignment is uh, constructed is it's titled, How Comfortable Am I? And it's one of those type of table column type setups where it asks if you are not comfortable at all, uneasy, fairly comfortable, and completely comfortable. And it has questions like, uh, you know, your family buys a home in a predominantly black neighborhood. And, you know, it, I guess it's asking the students to check off whether they're not comfortable or, you know, the different levels of comfortability. And apparently this teacher, I guess she was in a probationary period and she was uh, apparently fired. So it's a, it's a whole bunch of different I guess, questions about uh, mostly non-white people and something about somebody being HIV positive. Your black roommate gets a full tuition minority scholarship. So apparently this assignment seems to be directed at a uh, massive amount of white students, I'm guessing. So and uh, from the report, the student and, the, and her parent that they were interviewing she said the teacher was telling them, like, no, no, don't don't go show this to your, your uh, mother. Don't go show this to your parents. So it seems like she was well aware of um, this assignment she was giving out. And I'm not sure she made the assignment herself. I think it's highly possible that she did. And the, uh, the second one was over in, I guess, Albany, I guess, California. And there was a, one of those community meetings where, it was really, I would say, nauseating because it just seemed like it was very phony. It was like a lot of the parents uh, hugging each other because I guess it was some kind of Instagram page that was started up about, I guess, uh, like a, a white student started up like a KKK type of uh, account. And they've been having problems at the high school. I can't remember what high school it was, but it's titled Albany High School. And the father of the, I guess, teenager, the white teenager that set up the account, he was saying, well, you know, he got on the microphone in front of everybody and he said, well, I just want to let everybody know that the my son is being punished. And the examples he gave was, well, he's not going to be able to go study abroad. He's not going to be able to go to his class reunion. <laughs> And then he said he he won't be able to do something else. But it didn't seem like that was a punishment to me. It just sounded like he was, uh, you know, trying to fake being uh, apologetic, I guess. And, you know, he just hugged a black person. And, you know, that was the end of, of the report. So I just don't think he was being uh, genuine. 
And I, like one last thing was I, I saw that that uh, Pepsi commercial. I guess with the I think her name is Kylie Jenner or something. And what I like, what I noticed, the symbolism at the end was like the 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 audio stop. I guess they have music in the background, and you can hear a uh, like a can, a Pepsi can open. And I, you know, I think that symbolized a like a gunshot for some reason because you hear like a bunch of voices start raising. I guess like in you know cheering or whatever. But it didn't seem like that to me, especially at the end where it says live for now. So that was very uh, terrifying to me. So, I mean, just to look at the symbolism of uh, advertisements. Have you have you been able to see that commercial, Gus? I've seen uh, screenshots from it. I have not. Excuse me. I've not actually taken time to see uh, the video footage for the whole Pepsi uh, commercial. I had I had just caught it this morning myself, so I hadn't seen it as well up until then. And uh, that's all I have for now. Uh, thanks for allowing me to share. Uh, not surprised uh, with the, I guess, school situation. Uh, you said the nauseating uh, nature of it. Whites are very good. I think they already have their scripts for how they navigate with those type of incidents um anybody else that we missed completely anybody has a hand up uh that we have not heard from at all so everybody that has a hand up we got we didn't miss somebody who has a hand up to see one person. Uh, I think that might be Roz. You should be with us, Roz. Hey, greetings to you guys, uh, to all the callers and the listeners. I'm actually on the train right now, um, and I wasn't able to catch the um, first uh, couple of hours of the show because I was actually out with uh, two of my very close friends that I grew up with. Um, they're the ones who actually helped me get into the music game when I was a teenager, and we hadn't gotten to spend time together, all three of us, because we had a group together in well over a decade. So tonight was the first night that we went to a, a black restaurant and we ate, and we just kind of caught up. And one thing that I can say that is really a wonderful thing is, first of all, we we all made it to 43. None of us thought we would make it to this age, but they're all the same age, basically. And as we were talking, it was just so great to be amongst people that you care about and to see their growth as far as their understanding of the system because I talk about these things with them and have for a number of years. And um, one of one of the things that they both said was that a lot of the things that I do as far as writing and some of the other podcasts that I've worked on have really helped them um, over the years and just our discussions as, as our friends just talking about the real world and what's really happening. And um, just to sit with them and to see how their own codes have developed over the years and how they're teaching their children. Um, My son is probably the the second oldest out of all three of us. Um, And one of my friends has the oldest son who's now 24. My son is 21. And my other friend's son is just actually, he just turned 21. My son's going to be turning 22 uh, next month. And 
to hear just how the they raise their own children um, and their understanding of how the system works and the things that they're teaching their children and to know that I've been able to be a, a, a great part of their growth and development too. It's just a very rewarding thing and the greatest thing we can do as black people to fight the system is to help one another and not be afraid to share what we know. Um, even in those instances where we might think we're not being understood or we're not being heard, um, like I said, sometimes you might not, you know, hear from the person that you've talked to about these things for years, and then one day it just clicks and they understand and they'll come back and talk to you and say, hey, you know, those discussions that we had, they all make sense now, and I better understand what you were talking about. Dr. Wilson used to say that quite often. And um, I just wanted to implore us, everyone that can hear me, to, to not be afraid to just be honest with the people you care about, to tell them what you know to be true, um, even if they may not respond to you in the way that you would like as far as you, um, you know, understanding that they get what you're saying and that they um, might shift their behavior based on their understanding of things. Um, these things do come to fruition. Sometimes it takes longer than others, but just persevere. Um, don't be discouraged, as Dr. Wilson was saying, as Gus says quite often. Um, it will, something will shift in them. Eventually, once they've had enough experiences with uh, white people to understand when you tell them things that you tell them, that you're being honest with them and you're telling them these things because you care. Um, it was great to hear what Karma had to say as well, but just um, these things are some of the small steps we can take to, to move forward as a collective in a united independent fashion. Gus, I thank you so much for the show. I thank all of the people that call in. I didn't get to hear all of you, so I'll get to listen to you all in the archive. And I just want to say I thank you all for basically transforming my life. Um, in a lot of ways, I've connected with people on this show and some of the other shows um, more so than I have with my own genetic relations. Um, and I think I just have to say sometimes I don't think you guys understand how much you all mean to me. So I just wanted to say that to all the people that call in and that um, tell us their stories and are just honest and brave enough to tell tell things about themselves that might be uncomfortable. Um, again, thank you, Gus, and thanks to all the calls and listeners. I'll meet my line and, um, and listen, of course. I can't wait to hear the archives tomorrow. And um, keep doing what you're doing, Gus. I got your back, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people within your shot that do as well. Um, thank you, and I'll meet my line. Thanks, Ross. Uh, Thomas in New York, are you with us, uh, sir? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all. I just heard Ross. Um, unfortunately, I missed uh, the, the, the bulk of the show. Um, I was just chiming in to um, talk about an event I witnessed yesterday working at the hospital. If, um, I know it's not workplace well, you know, this isn't none of this stuff is workplace racism. It's just flat out racism. But I know it's not the form for that. But I just thought it was very compelling. And as soon as I saw it happen, I said, "Man, I gotta chime in and tell people." Um, a gentleman came in um, high on um, PCT um, dust. Uh, has a lot of names, but those are what it's probably primarily um, known as. And um. Um, a black man, and he was completely, um, he was completely out of his mind. He was screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. And that's a normally bad reaction to this drug. Um, and just for context, I've seen this drug make people, they're there one day, and they're never the same again um, mentally. Um, it's like a, it's like a, the 
it, it makes people um, just a mental illness. Um, either way, this gentleman couldn't realize why he was at the hospital, and he was very afraid. You could tell, even though he was high, he was trying to figure out where he was and why he was there. And they have a white police officer generally staffed for the overnight. And um, he comes in, and of course, he leaves this guy fully exposed, door open, so other patients can hear him screaming, so everyone's walking around and get a glimpse to see him strapped to the bed in his gown, nothing on under it, trying to figure out what, where he is and why he's there. And the cop comes in and, you know, pretty much tells him to shut up and starts giving him all these reasons why he's there, but none of them are true. You know, oh, bro, you, you know, you, you broke both of your legs, man. You know, so the guy's looking at him, like, my legs, my legs, my legs. You know, and then he came in later, you know, he was in a car crash, you know, like just giving different scenarios. And each time he does it, it causes this guy to go even crazier and start screaming and even louder. And this took place for about four hours. Uh, every time, you know, he felt like getting a laugh, he walked in and said, hey, man, it's not our fault that you jumped out your third floor window or, you know, whatever. And it, it just... um antagonizing the guy. And I just said, man, and at the same time this is happening, there's a, a frantic white woman, um, high off of um, what she kept saying is um, a mess. And um, cursing these cops out, you know, I want my effing lawyer, you know, not a scene. They block her off, keep her away from the public spew. Um, don't arrest her at the end of the night. It was just um, the total contrast. And she was being actually belligerent, nasty to the police, spitting at them, throwing things at them. That's why they had to strap her down and um, was not treated in the same manner as this black man who just had a bad reaction to a dangerous drug that he shouldn't have been taking. So um, I just um, thought that was um, very interesting. And um, I'll mute my line and um, catch out the, the clips in the archive. Good to hear from you, Thomas, in New York. I did want to say, I mean, because you have shared uh, a number of the different uh, horrendous acts of white supremacy that you have observed on your job. That's with my head, Josh. Right. That's exactly what I was going to say, man. Like, that's such a toxic yeah. environment to I be seen. I take it home, and, I, I can't, and what, what made me happy yesterday was that it was a black security guard, an older man. He finally told that cop, man, cut that BS out. He said it in a nasty way, but in a way that he knew, the cop knew not to go and do that anymore to that man. Cause, and then finally he stopped screaming, and the night turned out peaceful. But I was telling Roz this, like, man, it's because I love my people, and I'm trying to figure out this problem. And I see a problem that other people don't see. That this whole thing is a big problem, and it, it really messes with me designed to do so uh designed to do so um yeah i think i mean it's really really important um black mental health uh that type of situation just experiencing that on a regular basis week in week out like i mean if that means taking some time off if that means you know getting a, a vacation away just whatever you you need to just kind of uh replenish from that uh there has to be some time to just 
uh, take a break because uh, that's just a total assault uh, to be exposed to that sort of trauma. Uh, and just, I mean, these are flagrant examples of white terrorism on a regular basis. That's going to have a huge impact on you. And then to, to, to have that energy with you when you go home and throughout the rest of your day, I mean, that is that's horrendous strain. That is that right there. Assault on black mental health, black well-being. But I, what I do do, Gus, um, which I think is um, kind of, because I talk about it, I, I, I go home and I tell my kids what I saw, mm. explain how that is, this will happen to no one other than us, and I also tell other people in my family, you know, some of the stories, and it kind of helps to get it off my chest, even when I speak to Roz and I tell him a few of the things I might have seen or experienced, because all of it's not for the show, I mean, some of it's real graphic, and also... What hurts more than anything is that when I see these um, young kids coming in from shooting each other, that really, you know, they're young, they ain't even live life yet, you know, that that hurts more than even seeing the mental illness thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is one and the same. That that right there could be, you know, classified as, as mental illness uh, as well. Uh, monsters and monstrosities, uh, Mr. Fuller uh, calls it. But uh, that that is the result. Uh, a lot of different manifestations, but that is is the result of white terrorism. Um, did did we miss anybody? Number one, because we have about thirty minutes left in the program. Um, did we miss anybody completely? Is there anybody who has a hand up that we have not heard from at all? All right. So I'll assume that we got everyone. Um, I was going to check to see if uh, folks had additional commentary. Folks generally do. I was just going to get in. uh, Number one, the 60 minutes segment that was from Sunday, a week ago tomorrow, uh, where they were talking about the race soldier who executed Terrence Crutcher, where she said he, he looked like a zombie. That was why she had to approach and kill him. That segment aired literally within minutes of the season finale of The Walking Dead. Um, you know, that might be nothing at all, <laughs> whatever, but that just was, uh, that did come to mind uh, when I was processing that segment and she referenced him as a zombie. Um, I also thought it was interesting the segment where they were talking about informed consent, even the segment before that, when they were talking about uh, gene manipulation, where uh, they can turn off, I guess, the uh, signal in your body where you could just continue to grow uh, muscle tissue. Uh, And they were having, I think they called them meatheads. That's a metaphor. I'd be very curious about the racial classification of these meatheads who were calling to get this, uh, genetic manipulation uh, I think they even said they had a high high school coach that called to try to get this for their players that would presumably be children if they're in high school to have their genes permanently altered so that they could play football that is the mind of racist man racist woman racist child that's white culture I mean that should be thought about that was you know but then the second uh, segment where they were talking about Henrietta Lacks book club but where they were talking about informed consent and they said that it is a process 
and explaining to make sure that's one of those where that's the way that we should function at all times. Uh, when they're talking about informed consent, it's not, hey, I gave you the form and, you know, if you didn't understand it or you didn't uh, check it out, you're stupid. No, 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 no. <laughs> Even if I'm the dumbest person ever, informed consent means that you do what is needed to make sure that I understand that you can communicate on a level that I understand everything about what this experiment is going to be, side effects, potential harm, so that I understand everything. And if you can't do it, well, then you should find someone else uh, to, you know, do your experiment on because you cannot be. Uh, that's how it's supposed to work. You're not supposed to be taking uh, advantage of people. That's the way that we should function at all times, like not being afraid to have people explain if that means asking more questions, asking, you know, can you explain things in a different way just to make sure that I understand. But I thought what was also important with that segment with informed consent, a lot of times it'll be in writing. Where they'll ask, you know, sign this and, you know, then we can do whatever experiments we want to do and that sort of thing. I was thinking of that segment that aired. Uh, I think we played it on the compensatory call in maybe a month or so back where they talked about the racial disparities in reading comprehension, where I think they said about 80 percent of black people have like major deficits in their reading comprehension in comparison to whites. I would take that bit of information and think about that in context of informed consent. Uh, and that's what I was thinking about. But if other folks had commentary they wanted to share, feel free. Hey, Dutch, did um, anyone bring up the possible, um, the, the, the new um, head of war that's going on? And did anyone just discuss the... Um, how politically now um, everything is being pushed on to the Obama administration, um, including um, Loretta Lynch and Susan Rice possibly having to go before Congress to uh, not go to jail. Um, did anyone mention that? No, that had not been discussed yet. Okay. Um, yes. Um, well, I just think that pretty compelling black politicians um, and you see the place they, they always end up to fall, to fall people from whatever insidious plot that they're um, being forced to push out for the white people. I just thought it was very interesting that all of the blacks that were, had high authorization and high authority in his administration, including himself, with the allegations of wiretapping, are now or potentially going to be up for congressional um hearings, which one live will land you, land you in jail, and I just felt that was very interesting and um, pretty telling. I definitely, uh, I see that pattern uh, where black people uh, that are elected or put in some sort of uh, position of power, allegedly, uh, where whites, they you know, can wait. Sometimes they'll wait a long time. Sometimes they will do it in short order. Uh, but then they come with their accusations once they have completed whatever project uh, that the non-white person was going to be a part of. And then they just go about the business. I think Mr. Fuller says they build you up to tear you down. Uh, and they've done this with a lot of black people, even black people that were not necessarily politicians. Uh, they weren't, you know, elected officials. Other folks uh, have in 
folks want to comment on that new topic anyone else have commentary on that right on other commentary folks wanted to uh, make sure they touched on I'm sure I have something Um, obviously this week marks um, President Trump calling for the bombing of an airstrip in Syria because they supposedly used chemical weapons Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I don't believe chemical weapons were used, mostly because I'm only hearing about chemical weapons from the U.S. news media. But um, I heard, you know, I think about that in the context of places like uh, Flint, Michigan, where, well, shoot, for all intents and purposes, chemical weapons, i.e. the poisoning of the water for the people in Flint, and nobody was arrested, prosecuted, or killed for that. I think they did have some indictments, but that might be another illustration of uh, what Thomas in New York just mentioned, because I think one of the main folks that they have been whose picture that they've been putting up is a black person. Uh, He's it's I think like 10 people that have been uh, indicted and, you know, they say more. More to come, but uh, do you mean like do you mean like blame a nigga? That might be uh, another another way of phrasing it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, gotcha. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm just going to share this. Um. They renamed, you know how they used to say, oh, all the babies born to the black women, those are all crack babies, drug addicted babies, and white people are just like, oh my goodness, poor babies, born to drug mothers, this, that, and the other. But, uh, so now there's an article, and it says they, they've renamed, they've renamed babies born to uh, drug addicted mothers, and they now call it neonatal abstinence syndrome. And they say the rates have increased significantly in rural areas, and they say that the prevalence of neonatal abstinence syndrome has increased disproportionately in rural areas compared to urban areas. And uh, their take on it is that uh, the incidence of neonatal abstinence syndrome and maternal opioid use in the United States increased disproportionately in rural areas relative to urban counties. And what they want to do is say this geographic disparity highlights an ur- urgent need for policymakers to give appropriate funding for clinicians and programs that can improve access to opioid prevention and treatment services for rural women and children. And I tell people, whatever you're seeing, whatever you're seeing about the drug addictions of, of, of Europeans, it's so much worse than what the actual fact is. And the last two things clinically that interested me was the fact that Ebola, people don't realize that Ebola, if you have Ebola, it is what there's 100% fatality for your baby. Your baby does not survive. If you're a pregnant woman and you get Ebola, even if you survive, your baby's not going to survive. It's just the only thing I know that's 100% fatal to the baby and the first baby just survived. And they are all over this trial trying to figure out what went wrong. So they're really concerned about that. And then the last thing is... Um, the last thing is that is that head lice, their head lice have become resistant to medication 
So if you were actually looking for a delivery method that would target one race over the other, you could capitalize on the fact that headlights have become resistant to treatment. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, please, go ahead. I'll start after you. Oh, I'll be concise. I pitched uh, what the first uh, commentary that Karma added about <clears throat> the difference in now that rural folk are having these problems uh, and it's impacting white children, uh, their heroin abuse. Uh, I pitched that as a story, the contrast uh, that you do not hear. Oh, my God, we've got all these heroin babies and, you know, they're just going to terrorize society. This is going to be the worst thing ever. You don't hear all of that the way when it was crack babies, which was a lie to begin with, act of white terrorism. Uh, but I did pitch that because I do think that that is uh, hugely important um, and it's funding. It's not that this is a criminal issue. It's the same thing that you, they've been saying for the past year, uh, just but now talking more about the impact that this is having on young uh, white children. I think that's hugely important. Black children do not matter. Racist children got to preserve the next generation of white terrorism. Thank you for your patience, sir. Absolutely no problem. No problem. Um, on the political, uh, the Syrian bombing and, and particularly Obama's uh, former uh, administration officials being drugged before Congress. Um, I find it kind of, it, it's an amazing turnabout rather rapidly considering uh, I thought there would be, there would, uh, I, I don't know how best to put this. I thought uh, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, basically the Republican apparatus would wait a while before going after uh, Obama officials. With that being said, though, and, and, and moved away from that, the factions in the white community are fighting. And what I'm finding is they are telling on themselves, particularly about how racist they are. So I watched the video, which I would suggest to everybody, um, on the Empire Files and the racism in Israel, which speaks somewhat to the racism in America because Israel is considered the 51st state. So um, I just wanted to add that. Um, to the poisoning uh, of the Flint uh, resident, it's still happening. I was just reading an article about that, and I'm surprised that that's not getting more coverage, at least in the black media that the black media uh, doesn't seem uh, as focused on that. But then again, we're under siege so much. I guess it, you can only do so much with so much resources. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, greetings. Uh, just like to uh, give some extra commentary on the white female race soldier. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the global system of racist white supremacy has already uh, created an environment for non-white black people uh, in general, black males especially, uh, of uh, negativity as being animals, being uh, uh, beings that uh, 
that are out of control and therefore whatever means that is necessary to uh to uh uh put them down or or uh bring them under some sort of control uh is acceptable and uh also white females other than into uh teaching they're also are coming more and more into uh quote unquote law enforcement and in turn uh they are not going to shoot you in the leg or the foot uh, as i was uh hearing the suggestion and i've heard that a lot uh, uh, uh other and other uh outlets also they are going to go for center mass uh because that's the largest area and although they don't use the uh comment shoot to kill uh, theoretically, that's what it's designed to do. Uh, they have some more uh, political and or legal terms uh, instead of that straight term that the last I heard of it going on was maybe back in the 70s. Uh, I've also heard, saw some old clips in the 60s of, of white male police officers actually saying it, but they don't say that anymore. Uh, they are aware that uh, some of us are going to to uh, not going to follow orders, and that's just the easy easier means to kill one of us. Uh, uh, also, with the the as a result of the stress and other things that are involved that affects us due to the global system of racist white supremacy, uh, it just makes it much more uh, fluid and easier uh, means for. Uh, white people to harm us, even if we do everything correct when we are confronted by police, uh, as we are aware of in these last cases, some of these cases that, that have been coming up, uh, that uh, nothing is probably going to uh, take place to that uh, white female race soldier. Uh, so uh, that is some things that we just need to... Uh, continue to be vigilant on and at the same time individually uh, work towards uh, doing the best we can to preserve ourselves. Thank you. Ashe. I did want to get in as well. Make sure folks, uh, if you want to drop an email uh, or kind word uh, out to Pam, uh, she's doing better uh, with her health issues, but she did have uh, a death in the family, so she would appreciate, I'm sure, any uh, kind words or support uh, from folks. We were uh, trying to have her on the program and got interrupted uh, by that, so definitely she would appreciate it. Uh, racismws.com. Racism uh, and I also wanted to say, well, one, uh, if... Folks have commentary they want to get in. We have about 15 minutes, a little less. Uh, if you have anything you want to share before we conclude, do not wait until the last minute. Uh, the other Could comment. Yes, sir. Just the other comment quickly. Uh, I appreciated the caller who was saying that they uh, just the bizarreness uh, of seeing someone, an enforcement officer, no less, who is still facing trial. Uh, for a shooting, a killing, killing someone in the line of duty, as they say, to have this person doing an interview, that is unheard of. I mean, that just is not done. Uh, the attorney, as was stated, you know, would generally 
no way that can be used in court and you know all of that uh to me uh, as the person stated that strongly suggests uh that they don't think that this race soldier is going to be prosecuted to me it also strongly suggests that this is just entertainment which is what i've said uh a lot of this uh and 60 Minutes comes on Sunday evening. Again, it's primetime television, just like when they announced that there was going to be no indictment for the killing of Michael Brown. We can get our popcorn, sit around the television, and that is our entertainment. Black Death. I am done. Uh, The caller that spoke up? Yes, sir. Uh, I was wanting to say, uh, from my research and my travels, and I could be incorrect, and I'd like anybody, you know, to uh, tell me where I'm uh, incorrect. It, it seems like all of the drinking water is poison. All the drinking water that black people have access to is poison, and all the food that black people have access to is poison. So at every moment, you're being poisoned. And I was just wondering, does anybody know of any group of black people who has access to drinking water that is not poisoned by white people or access to food that is not poisoned by white people. Uh, that was my question. Thanks. It's probably going to be uh, non-white black people who stay very close in proximity to large groups of white people. There, there are some of us who are in those type of situations and uh, I would say, logically speaking, from that standpoint, their water personally uh, won't be tampered with and all of their neighbors are white. Final, about eight minutes. I overestimated the time. Last. Yes, sir. Yes, um, just to talk on um, water and um, the, the geopositioning of the global white power structure, um, 75% of the Earth's fresh drinking water um, is in Russia, and um, the other 24, uh, so at least 25% left, and 24% of the 25% is in Canada, uh, which leaves... Um, of the fresh natural drinking water on the planet, 1% amongst um, the rest of the world. Um, if there's ever a catastrophic event or anything, um, those two countries, Russia and Canada, are in a very prime position to control the drinking water of the whole planet. I just think that's very interesting and um, pretty much one of the main reasons why they're there. Um, the guy spoke about Israel. And I just wanted to say, and this came out um, big time here in New York during the Daniel Pantaleo trial, that on um, the New York police, and it came out that 42 of the largest 50 cities of the country, police forces and mayors have to go to Israel to be trained, um, to take um, certain tactical training and anti-terrorist training to secure the lucrative anti-terrorism money that the government allocates to the cities. So um, they're being trained. Our police forces um, are being trained. Um, A lot of the protocols and procedures they're using is coming straight from the Israeli army and uh, what they do to the Palestinian people, which is pretty similar to what they do to us. Also, um, 
last thing I wanted to say back to the political thing. Um, it's funny how this guy, I've never seen, even Obama, I've never seen a president under this much scrutiny. And then um, you drop a couple of bombs and it all goes away. Um, just very compelling. And it also um, shows that these people love war. That's their number one agenda. And um, as long as you're following that agenda, it's all good. And one of the big things they're knocking Obama for now is that he wasn't, with all the drone strikes and things that he did, he wasn't, you know, war enough to, to go and face Assad one-on-one or, or, or however they're trying to position it. And, um, you know, as long as you're going to war for these people, they love it. Mm. I think white people have have used that script pretty regularly. I think uh, Bush, second time around Bush, uh, I think he was subjected to a lot of scrutiny. I think uh, whites argued that all the way to the Supreme Court. Enough whites were uh, disgruntled uh, about him uh, being president, uh, that he was subjected to a lot of scrutiny. And then 9-11 happened, bombs were dropped, and a lot of that went away, unless my memory is in error. Other, anything else before we conclude? Anything else folks want to make sure they get in? Everyone satisfied? I also think it is suspicious that I'm still seeing like major mainstream publications talking about uh, Get Out. That just makes me further suspicious about a film because I've seen that before where it's a uh, black project and they continue to promote and talk about it well after the film is released we're talking about a movie that came out in February it's April <laughs> like the seasons have changed and I'm still seeing major mainstream white publications uh, talking about this film and why it's so important and it's groundbreaking and what it represents about racism that just uh, I say again uh, the great minister Malcolm X anything that makes whites happy I get suspicious uh, I will assume everyone is is satisfied. Right on. We should be here uh, in the middle of the week. If you have a problem finding anything uh, in the archives, if you have a guest suggestion, a uh, general gripe or complaint uh, that you would like to submit or in workplace racism, uh, certainly folks have been taking advantage of that. You can always email those until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail.com uh, thanks to all the folks uh, who have tuned in uh, invested called in always uh, appreciated uh, I hope folks are remaining constructive uh, I know it is warmer it has certainly been nice uh, out nicer I'll say it that way uh, out in the Pacific Northwest uh, now that it's springtime great get out enjoy the sun t- uh, enjoy the sun we still need to be codified uh, race soldiers. They do not take vacations just because it's warm weather. Uh, they tend to increase their terrorism against black people. In my view, part of that code, if you're out and about enjoying the warmer weather, sobriety would be best. Uh, they already see us and think, Oh, I get to be Rick Grimes from Walking Dead. Excuse the metaphor, but that was mentioned in the 60 Minutes clip where she called Terrence uh, Crutch, said he was a zombie. That's what they're thinking about us anyway. So you being under the influence of anything just makes it even, oh, look like they were staggering. That's, you know, that's what I've seen. So I had to get out my machete. The zombies, they'll move on you quick. 
Uh, just have that in mind. War is being waged against us. We want to make sure that we are sober so that we can make outstanding decisions to keep ourselves safe. Uh, you never know when you're going to be confronted with a race soldier badge or no. Uh, you might have to make life-saving decisions in a matter of seconds. Just keep that in mind if you are out and about. Enjoy what you're doing. Just remain codified. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.